Coming up next, The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy. Every Thursday from 4pm, right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the second show for The Crunch. It's Cam Slater here, and we're going to crunch the issues in politics and beyond. Let me know your thoughts on anything you hear today. Text 2057 or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. So what do we have coming up today on The Crunch? Well, first I'll share a little bit how I think partisan politics is toxic to society. And then I'll play for you one of my favourite songs, followed by a discussion with Matt King about his campaign in Northland and the importance of that campaign for Democracy New Zealand. And then we'll get this week's political tragic on the line, Lushington D. Brady from Australia, and chat about all all about Australian politics and explain what the voice is all about. And after that, we'll have Shane Jones call in to discuss his Northland campaign and what he sees are some of the challenges Northlanders face. Don't forget to let me know your thoughts, what you enjoy, what you hate. Text 2057 or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. So let's get into it. Enjoy the show. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Before I crunch the issues in Northland with Matt King and Shane Jones, I want to discuss the problems with political polarization. An interesting thing happened this week as I was arranging interviews for The Crunch. I tried to talk to the ACT Party candidate in Northland, Mark Cameron, and was met by a stony silence. Despite having a reasonable working relationship with David Seymour, he too ignored my requests. 
And then I called up Grant McCallum, the national candidate for Northland. I've known Grant for almost 30 years. His father and my father were great mates in the National Party. Grant initially agreed to an interview, and then an hour later he begged off, sending me a text message saying he wasn't going to come on the show. As you'll hear shortly, both Shane Jones from New Zealand First and Matt King from Democracy New Zealand made themselves available. They weren't afraid to come on Reality Check Radio. Then another curious coincidence happened. A good mate of mine has recently been selected for the ACT Party. He's been in the media a lot talking about the effects of rampant crime. On current polling, he'd become an MP, and that's how winnable his list position is. And I thought it'd be great for Reality Check radio listeners to hear his perspective as a, a retailer suffering from the effects of ram raids and violent crime. But he too has been banned by his party from talking to Reality Check Radio. Which brings me to the point of this monologue. Political polarisation is harming New Zealand. It seems that many political parties have a doctrine of not engaging with RCR. They didn't want to talk to us at the Parliament protest and they don't want to talk to us now. What makes any sensible listener to RCR and the crunch think that if these people won't talk or listen to us now, they will all of a sudden start talking and listening to us after the election. It's a fantasy. They won't. They think that they don't need our listeners and our votes. They think they have enough votes that a few more won't matter. And they're wrong. Polarization in politics is the very thing I mentioned last week as being toxic to myself and contributed to my stroke. It's just as toxic for New Zealand politics and New Zealand society. We don't need cliques of voters with approved topics and things they can talk about. We value freedom, something David Seymour talks a big game on, but through his actions and his words is less than impressive. We do things differently here. We want to hear all sides on any issue, and that includes politics. Political parties that will not talk to Reality Check Radio should not expect any support from our listeners, and neither should their candidates. The parties and candidates have no interest in actually exploring the issues with us, so we should have zero interest in voting for them. We need to get over talking past each other. We need to learn to listen again. We need our politicians to talk and listen to every Kiwi, not just those with views they like. In Australia a few years ago, the media attacked John Howard for meeting the exclusive brethren. When confronted about why he met them, John Howard said, they're Australian citizens just like everybody else, and added, this is no crime. In fact, the crime would be if a member of parliament refused to meet anybody on the basis of their religious convictions. And yet that is what ACT and National are actually doing to listeners of RCR. They, as elected people, are refusing to meet, on our station, voters and citizens of New Zealand. It's like they don't want our votes. These same people are the ones who locked us down, cost us our jobs, our careers, our homes, and our businesses, and now they want us to vote for them 
so that they can keep their jobs. Yeah, nah, that'd be a firm no from me. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Right, that's enough from me. Next up, I'll be talking with Matt King about the importance of Northland for Democracy New Zealand. Matt King is the former National Party MP for Northland, a man who stands on principle, leaving the National Party after daring to do his own research about COVID and vaccines. He is now the leader of Democracy New Zealand, and standing in Northland in a make-or-break bid to get Democracy New Zealand into Parliament. With me now from Northland Electorate is former National Party MP and now the leader of Democracy New Zealand, Matt King. Welcome to The Crunch. Lovely to be here, Cam. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Yeah, I'm wanting to talk to you, uh, Matt, about the Northland Electorate because for the first time in living memory, Northland electorate is in play and is an interesting race, and in particular for yourself and for your fledgling party, vitally important uh, to win this seat. And what I wanted to talk to you about is is a couple of things. One, we're going to touch a little bit on Democracy New Zealand, but focusing on Northland. But one of the things that I'm always constantly asked uh, about is smaller parties, and how they can get into parliament. And I always say to people, there's two things that you need to ask leaders of the of smaller parties or people involved in smaller parties. The first one is, what are you going to do to win 150,000 votes? Or what are you going to do to win an electorate? And in your instance, you're the candidate and the leader, so you can answer both of those questions and in particular with regard to the Northland Electric. So, Matt, tell the listeners of Reality Check Radio and listeners of The Crunch, what are you doing to win Northland? And then follow that up a little bit with what are you doing to get that 150,000 or so votes that Democracy New Zealand needs to get that 5% threshold? Okay, well, thanks, Cam. Um, Our focus, our main primary focus is winning the Northland seat. Um, that's the seat. That's the way I see democracy in getting into parliament. It's a lot, uh, in my view, a lot easier to win the win the seat for us, for me, than to um, get the five percent. Five percent is a huge hurdle, um, especially with the vote splitting that's going on now with all the freedom people and all the you know politically homeless people. So for me, you know, back in 
back in uh, I guess 2017, ACT was 0.5%. They were nothing. They were dead in the water. And and David Seymour won his seat and got in. And now look at them, you know, going gangbusters. Um, in 2020, the Maori Party got 1.2% of the party vote, but they won a seat and they got two MPs. So very clearly our, our best option is to win Northland. Um, so with that in mind, I've done probably 14 meetings up north. Um, we don't have the budget that some of the bigger parties have, so we haven't been able to promote our meetings to the extent that others have, but we, we've still got good numbers along to all of them, very encouraging numbers, and the feedback around everywhere I go is really positive. So we're, we're, I'm, I'm absolutely confident. And I'll give you an ex example, Cap. So I was a backbench MP in opposition in my term for 2017 to 2020. Yeah. I beat Winston Peters to get in, and I and I, I'll, I'll bet your bottom dollar back then, no one gave me a hope and help. In fact, Stephen Joyce said to me after the election that I'd won, he said we'd written off Northland for till 2023. We, we, we thought that that was going to be a Winston Peters stronghold till 2023. So everyone had written me off. They were nice about it, but they'd written me off, and I got through, and I did it just through sheer hard work, Cam, just the old-fashioned way, um, you know, door to door, um, meeting to meeting, shop to shop for um, nearly a year on the road. That's how I got in 2017. So, yeah, go. Not knocking on doors, the old-fashioned yes. way, public meetings. Yes. Yep. And so that's your plan this this election, go and knock on more doors than Willow Jean Prime, go and knock on more doors than Grant McCullum, go and knock on more doors than Shane Jones. And no, Well, well, yeah, that well, I, I've done that already. I did that in 2017. I was an unknown. I was a rookie. Mm. No one knew who Matt King was in Northland at that time. I was the national candidate. But that's that's how I beat Winston Peters because he everywhere he goes, he gets media and he gets coverage and he's well known. But I wasn't, so I had to do it the old-fashioned way. This time round, I'm, I'm, I'm better known. I have a track record. I'm um, I've, I've I've managed to achieve a few things even as a backbench MP and in Northland in opposition. So this time I'm, I won't be muzzled. I'll be a party leader and the plan is to hold the balance of power. So I'll have some, um, I'll have some leverage to get things happening for Northland and actually just more importantly, getting things on track back. I, the back on track term that national use, I was saying that a year ago in my meetings, get back on track. And now they're using it as their byline. Strap yeah, line. To be fair, man, I'm not sure that's a good, <laughs> that's, that's a good slogan, but Mind no, you, it's, a, it's a little bit no. better than Labor's slogan. In it for yeah. you, yeah. Oh, that that slogan of Labor's was, were to me, was just in, indicative of of where they're going, which is going downhill rapidly. Yeah. In the 2020 general election, you came second to Willow Jean Prime by what is it? Only a couple of hundred votes. In reality, isn't it? Yeah, 163 votes. 160, 163 votes. Yeah, your uh, vote for you only dropped a half a percent over 2017's numbers. Look, no, what happened was in terms of percentage, it might have gone down, but in terms of numbers, I actually got. 1, I was just going to say that was impressive because the rest of the National Party and their electorate votes had massive numbers of votes disappear from them. I'm You've just got saying. Me you got me worried, Cam. You're being nice to me. Got me really worried. Um, uh, so I just look, deal. I just deal in facts, Matt. So you you, <laughs> you managed to to keep your vote pretty close to to the vote that you had to win the seat in 2017. 
Willow Jean Prime magicked up about 8,000 votes from somewhere else, but it doesn't appear they were from your supporters. Where do you think she got those votes from and do you think she's going to hold on to those votes? So, so I no, I don't. I think she's going to get decimated because she's been AWOL. She's been missing in action. It's the fact, the catch cry is, where's Willow? Yeah. Um, she just turns up to an announcement or two that the government do. She's not, she's not present out in the field doing the hard yards. Um, I had three staff working in, in, uh, in the office in Kirikiri for the best part of three years look, dealing with um, constituent issues. She's had one person in, in Kaokawa for most of the term, and then the last the last uh, term, I think she's got got another second person. And so, so for me, um, she, I, I got 163. I lost by 163 votes. She effectively doubled her, her her vote numbers, which is unheard of in the whole electorate for the whole of the history of the electorate. So they will return to the normal numbers of eight to 9,000, in my view. Where they came from, well, there was a drug referendum. There was a COVID election. No one could campaign. Everyone was scared. A whole lot of special votes. I was actually an MP for three weeks. Uh, in 2020, um, and then the specials came in, and I was I was ousted, um, and I, I'd won by 760 votes on the night, and I was told that was a safe margin, and that no one with more than 400 votes had ever been overturned, and then um, the specials came in, and I lost by 163. But I'll give you a, I'll give you an example of why I think it happened, um, Cam. I, I did my research, I asked around, I spoke to a whole lot of different people about what had happened. And there was one business in Kerikeri that has um, a large number of professional people working in it, mostly women. Um, they represent the whole political spectrum, um, and a lot of them know us and are part of, you know, have been uh, know my wife and, and know the work that I've done as the MP. And they all voted for Jacinda, uh, the whole lot, hundred percent. And I, when I heard that, I went, "Wow!" It was a COVID fair election, and that's what yeah. happened. Yeah, it was so, a freak one. I think it's a one-off, Cam. I don't think it's going to be a repeat. Do you so. do you think that people voted for Matt King because he has a dynamic personality and boyish good looks and wit and charm, or they voted for you in uh, twenty twenty and twenty seventeen because you were the National Party candidate? I think in twenty seventeen they voted for me because I was the National Party candidate because I was the, you know Winston hadn't done anything he'd promised the world he hadn't done anything in two years and so I was the candidate and I worked really hard I got myself you know got my name out there and, and so. I think I got voted um, in as as because I was the national candidate in 2020. I don't think so. I think that in 2020, um, the national party brand was in the in the absolute gutter. Um, my party vote went from 47 down to about 27 percent, halved, almost halved, and yet my personal vote went up 1500, which was well, 54 national MPs. Yeah. Only two of us got more vote. Myself, 1,500 extra. Maureen Pugh got 500 extra. And the rest of the party MPs were decimated. Their own personal vote went way down. Some lost thousands and thousands. But the only reason they're still MPs is because they're, they're placed on the list for the fact they had a fat margin. Yeah. So for me, um, you know, uh, in 2020, I, I think I lost because I was the national um, candidate, national MP. I lost. Um, but I still managed to um, swim against the tide. I, I remember running into Richard Harmon at the airport, and he said, oh, you swam against the tide, Matt, because this was in the three-week period between becoming an MP and then being ousted. And I said, yeah, I did, but I'm not going to relax until the specials are counted because I don't know what's going to happen with overseas. And a whole lot, I think a whole lot of overseas votes came in. And they were, remember the wall-to-wall -wall, um, coverage of Jacinda being the, the, yeah. Yeah, the goddess. The I great saviour of, of us. Yeah, which was all false, but, you know.
Um, yeah, just looking at your yeah, party votes, uh, Matt, at the last election, 12,496, uh, as opposed to 18,834 in 2017. Mm. Um, that's where the election was lost for, for the National Party, is in the party votes and also mm. in some of these key seats in, in the electorates. Party votes are the most important. This election, though, you're not Matt King National, you're Matt King Democracy New Zealand. Are you hoping that a large chunk of the party votes, you'll be able to swing those across to back you? Or do you think the voters might hedge their bets and say, you know, I kind of like Matt King as a local MP, uh, but I'm going to put my party vote elsewhere? You're smart, Cam, and that's exactly what I think is going to happen. I think that there's, um, when I talk to National Party people at a staunch, they, they want this Labour government gone. I've said I won't ever side with the Labour, Maori Party, Green Party combo. They're, they're yep. dead to me as far as I'm concerned. They're the worst government we've ever had. I've made that very clear. So there is no, don't, no chance in hell that I'll ever go with them. I think national voters can say, look, I'll party vote national if I, because I want to make sure that national are in government, but I can give a candidate vote to Matt and hedge my bets and be an insurance policy. He has been our, our MP. He was a good MP. I'd like to think that they think that, or that he's um, he's a guy that um, he's a known quantity, and he's worked really hard and, and give him the and 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 have that strategic vote. And I think that together with a whole lot of Labour people that are so pissed off with Labour um, that they look, but they won't vote national, but they potentially give me their vote. That's where I think is the winning for me coming through the middle. But democracy in New Zealand, it's all or nothing, though, Northland, isn't it? They need you, Matt King, to yeah. to to win Northland, and then hopefully with maybe three or four percent, if you can get the party vote up, you can bring in another three or four MPs. Yeah, yeah. Look, that's that's our plan. I mean, we're running we're running two ticks and other seats, but um, you know we have one or two options. But I, I, you know, you never know what's going to happen at this election. But definitely, our main strategy is to try and win Northland. You know, I mean, I when I was, I've never worked so hard in all my life, actually, Cam, and um, since yeah. I was when I was an MP, and and since, I mean, I I came out against the mandates when when it was fat, when it wasn't fashionable to do, and I took a lot of flack for it. But everything we were saying, and I know you you did come out strongly against it as well, and you yeah. you were wide awake really early on. Yeah. Um, but but we we got hammered by people, and and actually, what's what's coming to the light now is that we were speaking the truth and everything we talked about is actually the truth now. So we're being yeah. vindicated. But whether, whether it'll be in time for the masses out there, who knows? Oh, will, will the media admit they were wrong? I don't think they will. They paid too no, much money. No, 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 no. But, I mean, to me it was painfully obvious. Like I interviewed a guy a, a um, really early on in the piece, like early in um, – back well before the protest, I interviewed a um, – Simon Thornley, an epidemiologist, and he's yep. just he te teaches medical students at Auckland University, and so he's a credible guy. And he just we had a very matter of fact interview, and once that aired and went, it got one hundred and seventy four thousand views. Um, the the National Party indirectly said, "What the hell are you doing, Matt?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm just stating facts, and I'm I'm sticking up for people." And I'm, that was before mandates, but they were proposed. And I I said, "We've got to at least respect the people's right to choose." And the National Party wouldn't do it. They just said, no, nah, we're not doing it. We're um, we're going with the vaccination program and we're going, we're supporting mandates. And I said, well, that's too, I can't do that. I can't be part of this. I have to leave. And that that was the day I, I realised that my career with the National Party was over, way before they started circling the wagons on me. 
this is what the National Party does, isn't it? They 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 make them the right noises about respecting freedoms, freedom of choice, uh, freedom of speech, et cetera. But quietly in the background, whether it's dealing with me or um, dealing with someone who has strong views about mandates like yourself, internally they they shut down debate and block people from voicing these concerns or uh, instruct MPs not to speak to Cameron Slater or don't speak to Matt King now that he's gone. Uh, all of that, they control the message very tightly from the leadership, don't they? They absolutely do, and they and and I'll rem- I can remember, you know, I mean, I, we got told as backbench junior MPs that lots of don'ts, don't do that, don't do this, lots more don'ts than do's. And I remember that when we had the checkpoints up in Northland and they were being manned, and there was no police on them, and there was just no, there was no logic behind any of them. And uh, I I said that I wanted to stand and I wanted to make it, you know, um, push back on that. And because they're unlawful, and um, the National Party said, "Hey, look, go for it." But I heard from I heard from you know came back to me quietly that if if it turned to custard on me, they were going to just say I was a maverick, and they were going to you know give me a bit of a talking to and a discipline. But it actually went quite well. My 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 stand against the checkpoints went well, and then so then they're putting press releases out and jumping on the bandwagon. But they were going to they were going to distance themselves from me if, if it wasn't well received. Um, and I remember one checkpoint was four kilometres south of Cape Ranga. There's no 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 community up there. There's just a lighthouse. They put two farm gates and two strainer posts across State Highway One, yeah. and they had um, a bunch of iwi there, local iwi, and they were saying don't go to the Cape. And and I was I went up there and I went I, I got called by Maori business owners in Hohor and around that said this is killing our business. We're we're, we're dying. I had um, Maori stock truck drivers saying I'm trying to get through checkpoints and. I, I, I'm trying to do my job. And then I had old Kuya from out in Mitty Mitty yeah. ringing me and saying, Matt, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm on the Maori roll, but, but, but you need to speak out and you have our support, but we can't come out publicly, but please, please speak now. So I went up there and challenged them. They threatened to give me a hiding and all kinds of stuff. And it, there was no, it was, it was, it was totally illegal. And um, I got it all on record and I gave it back to the national party. And, and then they, when it got well received by media, they, all of a sudden, oh, you're okay, Matt. But if it had gone to turn to custard, I would have been. Um, oh, they would have. They would have slammed me. They would have. Well, that's the it's the history of the National Party. Anyone who's ever been in the National Party and then left, you, you usually find the insights coming out of them um, dropping like truth bombs. There's but, some good people in there, Cam. As you oh, know, of course, some really good absolutely, people, really good. You people. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is some passionate people. There are some good people. There's good people in all parties, even the Labour Party, you know, that are aghast at what's been going on. I but, know. But I it's know. all or nothing for you in Northland. What do you see as being the key, you know, top three issues for Northland? And what will you do for Northland should you become the MP again? Look, by far the, the, the biggest issue facing Northland is our infrastructure, our core infrastructure, our, our roads. Um, every time there's a storm, um, we find that, um, like, for example, the State Highway north of me now, the main State Highway 1 has, has been blocked for a year and a half, and they got it open. They got to spend a fortune on it, got it open, and then the next big storm came through, and now it's shut again, and it's been um, you know, shut for, I don't know, months now, and it'll probably be years. So the only other state highway is State Highway 10 up the coast, and that's that's being hammered now. Everything's up there. So for me, the four-lane highway 
Uh, and if you've driven across the one from from Pooh to Walkworth, it's an incredible piece of engineering, and it's it's for me the state highway is not fit for purpose. So um, for me, for infrastructure is the core uh, up here. I think also that we we're lacking a few um, we're lacking um, health our health our hospitals up here are, are lacking. We've got pretty poor infrastructure with with health housing health um, housing. Um, for me, getting in. For me to get into Parliament, I want to hold the balance of power that way that I can have some leverage to make things happen. People said, what can you do as one person? And I say, yeah. well, actually, if they need our vote to form a government, we won't hold them to ransom. We won't, I won't insist on having de be deputy prime minister or having ministerial roles or having a, uh, you know, a slush fund or anything like that. I just want them to respect our rights. I want them to push back on for farmers um, against this climate change narrative, catastrophe narrative. Um, you know, just stick up for people, regular people. Um, yeah. That's all I want. All the common sense stuff, Cam, all the common sense stuff. So, yeah, so for me, I, I would say State Highway, State Highway, State Highway is the big one. Yeah. I, I know that last election they had a big promise about moving the port to Northland, and I knew that that was just pie in the sky. I knew that was just a big, big sales pitch to try and get votes, and it was never feasible, never going to happen. And a simple conversation with the port CEO at Northport, I asked him, how do you feasible is it? And he said, well, even if we expand to the biggest footprint that we have available up here, we still can't cope with what Auckland does um, now, so let alone 50 to 100 years. So the idea of moving the port was a pipe dream. But he also said the train track from here to Auckland would have trains on it every five minutes, and the, the actual um, trains through Auckland are filled up with commuter traffic, so they can't travel, you know, get can't. so it was just a big lot of rubbish. And I, I remember thinking at the time that, a lot of Northlanders were being sold this false hope. Well, that that, that train line is blocked currently, isn't it? It is. It is. And it's been and, like that for months. Yeah, and there's been sleepers sitting there, and I, I look at it and I go, "Those train tracks had rust on them before the before the um, rebuild happened. No one uses them. You, yeah, no one yeah. uses them, Cam." And I say, "Get the trucks off the road." Yeah, that sounds like good. In theory, until you say, well, what, what, how will you get the trucks off the road? The only bulk is timber and, and logs, and they've got to come from forest, so you've got to have a truck out of the forest. It's not worth unloading them um, between the forest and the ports. The distance is just too short. So economics tells you that um, upgrading the train tracks is a waste, waste of money. Um, so, you know, I used to see all these things being said and done, and people rolled out saying all these things and promising the world to Northlanders and and it's just false hope. And I just went, I don't want to be part of that game. I just want to be a bit more realistic with um, what we can do up here. You use the term false hope. And I've used the term hopium, where a lot yes. of pe people are addicted to hope, that they hope that there'll be a group of, uh, you know, uh, that all of the freedom uh, movement parties that, that are keep popping up all over the place, there's a hope that they'll all work together uh, or there's a hope that um, people will coalesce around one thing. It's my belief in politics and in a lifetime of politics that hopium is is incredibly dangerous, and yet that seems to be the main driver behind your um, some of your supporters that they're hoping that you're going to win in Northland. But what I'm hearing from you is that you are almost certain in your own mind that you're going to win Northland and therefore hope's no longer a, uh, a matter. It's, it's we're going to get there, I'm going to win Northland and therefore voting for Democracy New Zealand is 
is a vote that's worthwhile. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll tell you why I think Cam. Um, there's there's a bunch of reasons, and I'll give you them. Yeah. Um. Normally, each electorate is a red and a blue horse race. You know, one wins, the other one loses. That's yeah. pretty much the going. If you look at most electorates in the country, the blue yeah. team are in, the red team are out. This other way around. Up in north, yeah. and it's a totally different story. We've got two sitting MPs, a list MP and the and the Labour candidate, Labour MP. Yeah. We've got two ex MPs uh, running as well. Yeah. So you've got so we've got a we've got a uh, an act candidate that will never win the seat, but he will get more vote this time round because acts on it roll on a roll. He'll he'll mostly rob it from national. We've got a national candidate that's just been named, um, and he's he lives in the south right on the southern border. He's not known, so he's got his job ahead of him. We've got the Labour candidate who doubled their vote from the and and had a, and the freak election, and she'll go back down to her normal levels, and she's been missing in action. We've got Shane Jones running around up there, as he's, and he's always um, he's never won a seat in his life, but he'll, he'll, he's putting in a, a a bit of effort this time. Then we've got me, the the former MP. That um, I'd like to think I'd like to think Cam that I did a reasonable job when I was up here. I tried my best. I worked as hard as I could, and I tried to get things done, and I did. So for me, um, and then and then I had the pitch of say the vote's going to be split, so it's not going to be a red blue horse race. I was the former MP. I'm going yep. to be a party leader, so I'll be able to speak unmuzzled. Yep. And I'm very passionate about Northland. So, you know, I've got as good a chance as any of them of winning um, in, in the, the way this, this race is. So I, I hear what you say about Hopium. I absolutely do. If it was a red-blue horse race, yep, you'd probably go, oh, that's a bit rugged, but I don't think that. What do you think is the level of vote that you're going to need to win? Is it going to be 8,000 votes? Is it going to be 9,000 votes? It's, is it going to be sixteen thousand or nearly seventeen thousand like you got last time? What, I think twelve to four. Yeah, I think twelve to fourteen cam would would be a number that would be a safe bet because um, you know if you look at the act candidate, they got two thousand votes and they had no hope in hell of ever being um, the candidate. But two thousand people did vote for him, and you know he might lift his numbers to four thousand. You know the way he's going, he'll certainly lift his party vote. There's a lot of people here. That are former national voters that are talking about voting act and us. Um, I've never met so many people in my travels around Northland that are fed up with this Labour government, but they're also thinking that Luxon's not up to it. it I've, I've got I've got National Party people that are staunch Nats and have joined our party that have told me that they they're going to split their vote they vote strategically and um, they can see the the w- w- wisdom in doing it because yeah. the National Party only ever asked for the party vote. It's the only reason the candidate. It's the candidate that asks the candidate vote. So I'm going to people, look, you can put your vote, we vote for the party that you want to see in government, but give me your candidate vote as an insurance policy. I'm not, I'm a known quantity. I'd like to think that I was fair and reasonable guy and on the level, and I've been sticking up for your rights. And I'm also fighting back for farmers because I think this climate change narrative is, and I know you do too. So we're on the same page there is we've got to start saying to people, look, some of this rubbish that we've been told by our media and by our government are lies, and we can prove it. The evidence is there. We can prove it. So I talk to a lot of farmers that are really fed up and want to walk off their land because they think they're going to get taxed into oblivion. I say, no, hold your horses, wait for the next election. Things should come right. So do you you see Northland as a three-horse race or a four-horse race? And I say three-horse race, meaning Willow Jean Prime, yourself, and Shane Jones, and a four-horse race, including Mark Cameron. But Mark Cameron only got 1,279 votes at the last election. 
Yeah, it, okay. I think it's a big ask for him to try and get to eight thousand. When, when I think three, it's a three horse race. Um, yeah, Cam. I think it's National Labor and myself. Um, I don't think I don't think Shane Jones is. Um, you know, I don't think Shane Jones is in, is in the running at this point. I remember that in the twenty twenty um, election, the media came to us and wanted to do a battle for North and. Um, promo, a big thing on Saturday morning, and they were just going to have it against Shane and myself. And I actually said to them, no, you want to actually get the Labour candidate involved in because she's actually, you know, she's probably going to poll higher or get more votes than than Shane will. Um, and they, they were actually just going to have it as a head-to-head with me and Shane. And I just said, that's not right. And, and as you know, the rest is history. Um, Shane was way behind us both. Um, well, in a three-horse race at the last election, there was close to 40,000 votes. Split, mm. split between the three of you, Willow Jean Prine, 17,066, mm. you on nearly 17,000, 16,903, and Shane Jones on 5,119. Mm. If it's a three-horse race and you're basically getting, you know, around about, well, you're saying 12 to 13 will get there, that's that's still going to be close between the other two, isn't it? It's going to be you know ten thousand or so each on that. That's that's, that's what all, I'm picking. Yeah. yeah. So you're so you're picking a fairly even spread with maybe a two thousand majority uh, f- for the electorate vote. The party vote who will be anybody's guess, but I'm picking national will probably take the top spot there again. So so I, I definitely think that the Labor candidate, Labor MP, who's Who's absolutely been missing in action? She will go back down to eight or nine thousand votes. I, uh, there's yeah. so many Labour people up here that have told me that they'll never vote for Labour again. They were staunch Labour people, like very staunch, and never ever voted for anyone else. Loads of them are telling me that they're that they're up, they're looking for where to put their vote, and they've said to me they can't vote for the Nats or or Act. They just can't, but they'll give me their support. So there's those ones there. So that so I think that her vote will be decimated. I think that, that, that you're a fool if you don't think the national candidate's not going to get a whole lot of um, staunch net vote as well. So I, my view is it's going to be, yeah, probably uh, myself and, and and the national candidate and and with the Labour candidate in behind. And that's just, you know, aiming for the stars, Cam, you know, being positive, you know, manifest itself. You know? Yep. Have you um, have you invested in a poll to see where you're sitting at the moment or, or are you just going on gut feel? Well, we polls cost a lot of money, and we haven't invested in a poll yet. We, I'd rather spend my money on hoardings and flyers and and being active. Um, I also think that when we had a poll, we've seen polls where people have contacted me and said, "Look, I got I got poll called by a polling company, the main ones, to the Cantar poll and others," and they said, "You're not, we're not on the list." They they give us a list of options of who you'd vote for, and Democracy NZ wasn't on yet. We'd been registered for six months. So we're up against it with that polling stuff as well, I find. Um, yeah, a bit, bit disappointing to hear that even months after they've been registered, we're still not offered as an option. We're only in the other. If I'd named my party other, we would have polled quite well. <laughs> well, um, I've got a little surprise for you. Uh, Reality Check Radio has commissioned a poll for Northland. Yep. And uh, we'll have the results of those next week. And um, I'd like to touch base with you again uh, to discuss what those show, what that poll will show. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see whether it is a three-horse race or a four-horse race, or it might even be a one-horse race. But one thing's for sure, after we get those poll results, we'll have a stake in the ground, and then we can then perhaps address ad- additional questions 
okay, Matt, it's showing that you're coming second by a considerable margin, or okay, Matt, looks like you're right, you're leading. We will actually know where Northland is sitting, and that will, will ultimately, I think, lead to a more exciting race for Northland because for for a chance in a in a lifetime, really, there's an opportunity for voters to make a real choice. And, and the only other time I see that has has happened for Northland was was in the by election. Hey, uh, every other time, it's been blue, 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 blue right the way through. Hey, Cam, tell me, when was that poll taken? Because obviously, r- just recently, we had some bad news. And um, and so a well, lot of we people... Po- we, we postponed that poll. Uh, we were going to do it a month ago. Uh, and we decided that we wouldn't do it when you had that bad news with, with some of your um, candidates leaving. We decided we'd postpone it a month, put a little bit of water go under the bridge so that we had a fair result. So um, we are actually going to be polling uh, this week. So we haven't we haven't even started the poll. We've commissioned it, but we've made yeah. sure that there was a bit of time there so that it was a, a fair representation of Northland that wasn't coloured by uh, news outside of your own control. Right. Are you? Did you say you got a poll, another poll in Northland this week? Yeah, we're doing it this week. Lovely. Awesome. So what I'm what I'm saying to you is that we we were mindful of not having a skewed poll because of recent news. We wanted to make sure that there was no recent news, that it was just a a Northland poll of all the candidates and uh, that it was fair for all of them. Um, You know, we could have run it. In fact, we had it ready to go. And then we had, then you guys had that bad news and we thought, well, no, that's not going to be a fair, it's not going to give a fair uh, representation of where things are at. And uh, everyone was sort of up in arms with, with those candidates leaving Democracy New Zealand, and we wanted to see how that was going to pan out, how that was going to flow through to, to the freedom movement as as a whole to see what, what would happen there. And I think things have calmed down a bit now. There's a whole lot less emotion in the, in the debate, and that will give us a, a better representation of the poll. Awesome. Thank you, Cam. So, yeah, I'll touch base with you next week when we've got those results and I can share them with you. and. Uh, Hopefully, we've uh, managed to inform a few more voters about what Matt King is standing for in Northland and uh, how vitally important it is for the freedom movement that you win in that seat. And that's certainly your goal. Uh, Of course, everybody else, Willow Jean Prime, Shane Jones and uh, Grant McCullum will be fighting like hell for the seat as well. So it's it's panning. It's looking like it's going to be an interesting campaign. Look, it is, Cam, and, and one of the other things I forgot to mention was that up here we've got a real issue with crime, and that's a big strength of mine, so we're going to be pushing, we're going to be releasing our crime, um, our law and order policy, safe communities out in the next couple of weeks, so it'd be good to talk to that um, as well when I talk yeah, to you. Yeah, well, we can, we can touch base when that's, uh, again, when that's, uh, when that's released, and we'll have a chat then about crime. Champion, thanks, Cam. All right, awesome. thanks, for your, thanks for your time, and uh, and I hope your experience with the crunch has been pleasing. It's been quite good, Cam. I'm 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 quite um, chuffed that you've given me a fair crack. Uh, that's that's the new Cam, giving everybody a, a fair suck <laughs> of the salve, so to speak. Good on you, Cam. All you right, keep it up. You keep it up. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Well, that was an interesting discussion with Matt. He showed us how vitally important it is for Democracy New Zealand to win in Northland. It's literally make or break. And Matt thinks he has the best chance to win based on his track record and believes that it's actually a three-horse race between him, 
Labour and National. Next week's poll, though, will show us if that is true or not. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Changing it up this week, we go to Australia and talk to Lushington D. Brady about the voice, net zero, and the cost of living crisis in Australia. Lushington D. Brady describes himself as a punk rock philosopher, liberalist contrarian, a grumpy old bastard, and a freelance writer. Lushington's also written a book, uh, essentially an anthology of his writing at the BFD. It's called Shouting Across the Ditch, and I've got Lushington D. Brady with me now from Tasmania. Welcome. Welcome. Good day, and hello to New Zealand. How are you all? Well, I thought we'd have uh, an Australian perspective on life and politics uh, for the political tragics, just so that we can add a bit more depth so we don't delve into just New Zealand-only politics. So let's just have a discussion, Lushington, about... Well, let's start off with the thing that everybody's talking about with Australia, this so-called voice referendum. What is it? How did it come about? And what the hell has John Farman got to do with anything? <laughs> uh, poor old John. I'm not a big fan, but poor bugger's going through a lot of troubles with um with with illness at the moment. So do wish him the best. Uh, so the voice, it's essentially the same agenda in New Zealand as as you have with Apua Three Waters. It's a co-governance thing, it, just by another name. Um, how it came about, it's like a big difference between Australia and New Zealand is that Australia never had a, had a treaty like Waitangi. Yeah. With one possible exception. And, and essentially because it was impossible. I mean, you know, the Maori in New Zealand were organised enough that Hobson could get together the major chiefs and sign an agreement. In Australia, you, they were dealing, yeah, you essentially dealing with 150 major language groups alone, and each of those would be divided up into, a, you know, sort of loose sort of tribes. And the basic organising unit was a band mostly of, you know, of an extended family, could be a couple of dozen or, you know, maybe 100 or so at most. I think Geoffrey Blaney said, put it in perspective, said, the average uh, pre pre contact Aboriginal Australian would maybe meet a thousand different people in their lifetime. So signing a treaty with you know of any meaningful thing with you know with that was just impossible. Um, John Batman did try uh, when he when he set up his his village in on the shores of Port Phillip Bay. But that treaty was never was never recognised by colonial authorities because he was essentially a, a privateer, um, and there's no. It's probably very unlikely that the the Aboriginal men who signed it had any idea what 
they were doing, yeah, what, what Batman was doing anyway. They probably just thought, hey, this guy's giving us a bunch of gifts and all we have to do is make a mark on a piece of paper. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, there was never a tr- there was never a treaty. So, and that became an issue in the sort of 60s and 70s with the rise of the Aboriginal rights movement. And eventually we got to the point where um, by the... By 2015, I think it was, the government, that was when Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister, Mm. convened what they called a a Makarata, which was basically a, I was um, trying to get my facts straight here. Um, Anyway, it was a consultative group, and they came up with what was called the Uluru Statement from the Heart now. As, as always, they're very, yeah, the left are very good at using emotive language and, you know, it sounds really a yeah, nice cuddly thing, oh, you know, it's straight from the heart. But what it was actually a very radical document, so much so that Turnbull and the Attorney General at the time, George Brandis, just said there is no way this would ever get past the Australian people. It's just too radical. Um, so it went into abeyance. Then I think 2019, the Scott Morrison and his government were preparing legislation for an Aboriginal voice to parliament. And the idea is a special consultative body to speak straight to parliament on Aboriginal issues. Uh, Morrison went to an election before that ever went, that legislation was finalised or tabled. And it was never spoken of during the election. Albanese never said a word about it. But yep. the very day after the election, when you know, the results were finalised, he announced a referendum. And this time it wasn't going to be legislated. It was going to be in, in the Constitution. And that's his, they've stuck to that since, that it has to be in the Constitution. It sounds, Which, it sounds almost like uh, an argument from the castle, isn't it? It's the Constitution. It's... The vibe. Uh, it's the vibe of the thing. Very much so. And that's been the issue all along. Like it took over a, took nearly a year before they even announced what the question would be. And what is the what, what is the question, Washington? Just for, yes, for, for our listeners here in New Zealand. That's I'd have to look that up. Essentially, it's its preamble is that uh to recognize every uh, if Indigenous Australians or First Nations, I think, is is the fashionable term this, these days, uh, where that's come from. Yeah, it's just basically just to be imported from America. And so, the proposed question is to alter the constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve this proposed alteration? Yes, it's that's essentially it. But what um, defines what defines what the voice is? Oh, well, that's been the issue all along. Um, essentially, um, Albanese has just said, "We'll figure that out once we've passed the referendum. Leave it to Parliament." <laughs> that, that, that's the that's a real slippery slope, isn't it? I mean, really, yeah. And there's look, nobody is really. Even the people proposing it are contradicting each other. Uh, 
Linda Burney, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, says, said, for instance, oh, you know, it won't be able to um, say anything about changing the date of Australia Day, whereas Thomas Mayo, who is the chair of the Yes23 campaign, straight up said that would be one of, one of the first things we'd look at. Uh, the other question has been, would it be what they call justiciable, which means if the government, because that's another thing, what happens if they, if the voice recommends something to the government and the government says no? Uh, if it's justiciable, it means that the voice can then take the government presumably to the high court and have it ruled on there, where some of them are saying, well, no, well, I think Robert one of the one of the sort of legal people behind it basically said on most matters it won't be justiciable. I mean, most matters isn't it? Yeah. So it's yeah, they're having an each way bet all the way. But even if it isn't, I mean, what is going going to be the the comeback for a government that tells a constitutionally enshrined body no? Well, I mean, you mentioned about all the different peoples, nations, languages. Etc. Yeah. How is how is someone going to be appointed or chosen to be part of the voice? Again, well, that hasn't. Yeah, I mean, again, that hasn't been finalised. The campaigners, yes, campaigners point to the to the Langton Calma report, which was the one actually drawn up for the Morrison government, and that is essentially that. Yeah, it'll go to local local bodies. They'll elect somebody, but still, like how many people will be on it, how they will be chosen, etc., isn't finalised at the moment. Um, yeah, there's no draft legislation in place. The Carmelington report is just that—a report. I don't think it even has the status of a white paper. So, so the Australian public are being asked to vote on a proposal that is pretty much an open door with no defined goals, ideals, or even uh, numbers of people who are supposed to represent this voice. It's, do you agree with the voice, and we'll sort it all out later? Yeah, and They've been very tricky with the referendum question in tying it to the idea of recognition as well. Uh, yeah, that's that's an other issue entirely. Should the constitution specifically recognise um, Aboriginal Australians? Uh, people point to say the say the Canadian constitution, the Finnish constitution, which do recognise their Indigenous peoples, and but. Um, no campaigners say in response to that, well, the Constitution refers to the Australians of Australian people of every state and territory, and surely that includes Aboriginal Australians. Are they Australian or not? Mm. Um, and that is probably, certainly for me, the biggest, the single issue against the voice is it's a racially exclusive clause in the Constitution. Yeah, I thought... We were supposed to get rid of that in 1967, where the Section 5118, I think what's called the race powers, uh, specifically ex excluded Aboriginal people. In 1967, the reference to Aboriginal people was struck out. So it's now just the people of any race. 
personally, I think section that the race powers section should be gone entirely. There should be no reference to race at all in the Constitution. And so it, it is essentially an apartheid bill. Yeah, people say, oh, but apartheid was just South Africa and you know, discriminating against black people. Well, technically, yes, but that's like saying, well, democracy is um, only applies to landowning males in Athens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's what it was originally, but it's become a, a blanket term. And essentially apartheid is any exclusive um, privilege or granted by law to, to any racial group. And that's exactly what the voice is. And that's like the the astonishing lie of the S campaign is they say it's not about race. How is it not? I mean, how are Aboriginal Australians not a race as much as, say, Irish, Greek, Italian, Australians, British Australians? Well, it's it's interesting because from a Kiwi perspective, we're looking at this debate in Australia and, and saying to Australians, don't go here. You are heading down the same path that is that New Zealand has headed down, and particularly in the last six years, and with our government in New Zealand introducing race-based policies, medical apartheid, um, you know, all sorts of various different ways to segregate, separate elements of society, and race being one of those. We've even had the, this government uh, split the health system in two into. Uh, a Maori health system, and then everyone else. Uh, and it's even come down to, uh, and at Auckland Hospital, for example, if you're a Maori, you can pay $3 for all-day car parking, but if you're anybody else, um, sorry, you pay the going rate on, on, on the parking buildings near the hospital. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, that's a very dark path. And, okay, at least some of the people behind it, no doubt, are doing so with the best of intentions. And I know I can see that, but, you know, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I mean, no one would deny that Aboriginal Australians are disadvantaged, but is this the route we want to take to fix it? Yeah, it's um, it. A lot of this, I guess, stems from the declaration by the British government in 1788 that uh, Australia, or in, in particular at that time, New South Wales, uh, being the colony, uh, was terra nullius. There's, there was no that, people there. <laughs> that is, I am not entirely sure that that's correct. There was a doctrine of terra nullius gradually adopted, but uh, I don't know that it was ever official, like the Britain's official view. Certainly, if you look at Captain Phillips' drafting um, orders when he was setting up the colony in 1788, yeah, he was ordered to conciliate the affections of the native peoples um, and to ensure that no, yeah, that no heart, no injury was done to them. Um, and to his credit, Philip tried. He was, for instance, he published a set of, they put up basically posters around the Sydney area showing visually like an Aboriginal man attacking a, a British man getting hanged, a British man attacking an Aboriginal man being hanged. They were trying to at least establish that 
you know, the law applied equally to everyone. But you had such two such disparate cultures, as um, Jeffrey Blaney has said, one which was which had just invented the steam engine, the other which didn't have the means to boil water, which mm-hmm. is not a slur, it's just a simple observation. So two, yeah, you're probably the most widely disparate cultures on earth. And there had, yeah, you know, there had to be conflict, and it was un- it was unfortunate. Um, but there are a lot of myths around it. Like there was another one that does the rounds on social media quite often, which is that prior to 1967, Aborigines were counted under the Flora and Fauna Act. That's a complete fabrication. It's just not true. Yeah. Um, the other one is that 1967 granted Aborigines citizenship. Again, not true. They they already were citizens. Um, they didn't have full rights. Basically, what 1967 was about was striking out um, the exclusion of Aborigines from the race powers, which basically says the government, the Commonwealth shall have shall make orders for the for the good uh, blah 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 of, of 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 any race, which and originally said except the Aborigines, and so that was struck out. Yeah. So it still does mean that the government can pass racial laws, which I think is very wrong. Um, the other thing that 1967 did was to basically say that to drop the, the clause that excluded Aborigines from the census, from the national census, which was a holdover from colonialism because yeah. at Federation, when they're trying to get the seven different colonies all to agree, the eastern states who had fairly small Aboriginal populations said, well, how do we know that South Australia and Western Australia aren't going to use their Aborigines as um as pawns basically to you know to override our the other states? And so yeah, that was that was why they were excluded from the census. Again, that was repaired, that was remedied in 1967. Yeah. So in to my mind, the the voice is basically reversing the gains of 1967. In 67, we took racial exclusion out. In 23, they're wanting to put it back. Which is exactly what's happening in New Zealand too. Uh, I don't think in a positive way it's contributing to New Zealand. You're seeing a division in society uh, based on race. And, you know, we all protested that when South Africa was doing that. And for some reason, it seems to be okay to be heading New Zealand and now Australia down the path of racial um, division and then on all of the polarization that comes along with that at the same time. But, yes. But the it's not going too well for the yes people, though, is it? I, I saw not a, a poll all. the other day that showed that they're, they're now well in the minority now and the anti voice uh, vote is growing, whereas the yes vote is shrinking. Yes, and that's it. The yes vote peaked around the time the referendum was announced. And since then, it's it's been constantly going downhill. And I mean, initially, as you would probably expect, uh, older voters and men were more opposed. Um, more conservative states like Tasmania, Queensland were also more opposed. 
but that has steadily reversed um, because the thing to understand about Australian elections is it's not a simple national majority. I'm not no. uh, not elections, sorry, referendums. Yeah, I'm not sure how it works in New Zealand. In Britain, say with Brexit, it was a national majority. Whoever got past the post, the referendum was passed. Yeah. In Australia, the founding fathers were pretty clever, I thought, in making constitutional change very difficult. Um, so you have to get not just a national majority, but a majority in each of a majority of states. So Australia has seven states. At least four of them must have a majority in each state for the uh, referendum to pass. So it's 50% plus one in all of the seven states yep. and 50% plus one across the country. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes it almost impossible to, to, to change the constitution in that manner then. So Albanese's, you know, gone all in on this. Is, mm. it, it, is, the, is a negative result going to affect his standing well, in a similar way to, to John Key who pushed to change the New Zealand flag and was utterly convinced that he could convince most New Zealanders that his way was the best way and then lost the referendum and kind of at the same time lost his will to carry on being Prime Minister? Yes, and uh, as David Cameron did with Brexit as well. Mm. I mean, yeah, technically it shouldn't affect the, the government, but practically, especially when a prime minister so nails his colours to that mast, it has to be, you know, uh, a um, a blow. Because uh, as I said, Albanese announced the referendum out of nowhere the very day after the election. He's declared that it's the number one priority of his first term in government. Uh, note the hubris there, first term, <laughs> not only term. Um, and that also, I think, has been a big factor in the growing no vote. In the, you know, Australia, yeah, we've got a cost of living crisis, we've got a housing crisis, we've got an energy crisis, and the government's number one priority is is a race-based referendum. I guess you could cynically say that Albanese is getting this out of the way in the first year of uh, of his uh, government because you have four year terms. Yeah. If he gets it out of the way, the no vote uh, wins. He then essentially has two and a half years to make everybody forget about it. I think that's quite probable, and also, I think he wanted his his big moment. John Howard had the Port Arthur gun law reform moment. Um, Kevin Rudd had the national apology. So I think, yeah, a lot of it was just Albanese wants to, you know, have a big feel-good issue that he can that he can nail to his resume. What is it with these, you know, small in stature politicians wanting to have these big things to put their name to? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, it's not something that couldn't have been done by normal parliamentary process by by legislation. That's what Scott Morrison was preparing to do. Of course, the Yes campaign's answer to that, well, if it's legislated, it, will, it can always be repealed. And I thought, well, yes. 
That's the general if it's idea. Legislated and it, yeah, I mean, if it's legislated, it turns out to be a dog. Yeah, we can. The next government can get rid of it, and surely they should. Yeah, and they, some of the analogies they use are ludicrous. Like they say, "Oh, well, no one complains about big business or or anyone else having a having access to parliament." It's like, yeah, but they don't. They're not in the constitution, and by that by that measure, don't Aboriginal Australians have a voice already? Yeah, you know, they can lobby their local member. They've got. They've got representative bodies. Um, they can stand for parliament. Yeah, and a, a great many do, and are very successful. In fact, proportional to population, as, yeah, Aboriginal Australians are slightly overrepresented in parliament. And look, yeah, good, good on, good on the the people who who run and stand and get elected. I mean, I guess the real question is: is how how is having the voice, for want of a better term? going to improve the lot of all Australians, uh, particularly with the, those crises that you mentioned, the, the the cost of living crisis would be similar in Australia as to what we're experiencing here with higher fuel prices and, mm-hmm. and food prices and all of that. Let's just, let's just get off the voice for now. I think we've kind of covered that to death. <laughs> Let's talk about the cost of living crisis in Australia and what the politicians are saying and what they're doing mm. about it. Well, I mean, it, it feels pretty bad here. Presumably it's not as bad as New Zealand, given the uh, the scale of the uh, trans-Tasman migration at the moment. Mm. Uh, but it is biting. Um, just today, those Coles, data was leaked from Coles, who are Basically, your equivalent of um, of Countdown, you know, the big supermarket chain. Yeah. Although I think Countdown are actually owned by Woolworths, but we have a duopoly in Australia rather than a monopoly. Um, well, they've just announced they're going to rename all the Countdowns in New Zealand Woolworths. So we've got a uh, duop- we've got a duopoly here, and I imagine it's a duopoly in Australia as well. Yes, and so yeah, their sales data was leaked, and it's showing that. Um, Australians are cutting back heavily on, I guess, what you could call non-essential essentials. Uh, yeah, we're not talking about cutting cutting back on buying avocados or pate or anything. People are cutting back on things like um, hand wash, uh, sponges, um, yeah, kitchen kitchen cleaners, that sort of thing. Yeah, which I guess are not technically essentials, but they are essentials and Sales in those have plummeted in the last 12 months and even in the last month. So it's quite obvious that people are having to cut back heavily, Um, especially a lot of people who may have bought a house, say, in the last five years um, and are seeing that we've had five straight, well, we've basically had straight interest rate rises ever since Albanese was elected. They've just they're just going to be changing the RBA governor now, so that that may change if it's a if it's a particularly political appointment. Um, but yeah, you know mortgages are going up, and unfortunately, unlike the eighties where mortgages mortgage interest rates went up to like fifteen percent, the sheer cost of buying a house now means that uh, you know a one percent shift in mortgage rates can make or break people. 
Is is the government in Australia, you know, blaming external uh, inflation on on inflation causing all these things? They do that in New Zealand. You know, they say, yeah. oh, it's the war in Ukraine's causing yeah. inflation in yeah. New Zealand. But you know, we've just seen seen some statistics released today saying that international trade tradables are only contributing twenty two percent of the inflation in New Zealand, and non tradables, i.e., domestic. Inflation is seventy eight percent. Is it the same for Australia? And and are people seeing through the politicians laying the blame at external externalities for actually their frivolous and wasteful spending that's fueling the inflation? Yeah, well, I couldn't quote the numbers like that, but I shouldn't imagine it would be any different. The only way that say the war in Ukraine could affect Australia is in say the cost of gas. Because you know, suddenly, as Donald Trump warned them and was laughed at for, um, Europe was heavily dependent on gas from Russia. That's now being cut off, and they're up, they're up the creek. So Australia is exporting a lot of gas because exporters can make a ton more, you know, by selling it overseas than they can locally. Yeah, and so, but it's more. Yeah, people are really seeing through, especially things like the energy prices. I mean, Albanese promised, I think some 90-odd times during the election campaign, that they would lower household electricity bills by about $275 a year. Instead, they're going up about $500, depending which state you're in. And that was where, and yeah, they, they're firmly committed to net zero. and again. Net Zero Australia, the government's body they set up to oversee it, released a new report, and it's just diabolical. Like how they can put out a report like that and still say this is good policy, I do not do not know. Um, yeah, for instance, it's just showing yet again that modelling is rubbish uh, because we, yeah, when Albanese said about lowering price prices. Uh, the electricity price and said, and I know we're going to do it because we've done the modeling. Uh, and now the modeling has, da- has danger just been, Will Robinson, danger Will Robinson. Yeah, it's just been completely busted. And for instance, to go to even have a ha- chance of going to renewables totally, we have to rebuild the entire grid. Because yeah, grids as they are are designed to run on constant reliable feed, you know, from a coal or gas, or whatever station. Nuclear? Yeah. (laughs) And so renewables are very into bits, so the whole grid has to be rebuilt. And the thing is, they're committed by by 2060, so they've got 40 years to build an entire, rebuild an entire grid. And that doesn't count then, and they initially estimated that at costing only 78 billion, I think it was, or around, around 80 billion. Their new the new report now says 1.5 trillion. So that's and that's um, in the so next, that's that's an estimated cost, and that's to, just for the uh, net for the transmission on the, lines on the first to rebuild the the, the, oh, no. the network. No, the, that's just to rebuild the network to build the generation and everything else. We're looking at seven to nine trillion dollars wow. in forty years. I mean, our annual GDP is 1.5 trillion. Uh, 
as we've got a post coming up in the BFD today, right? It would essentially mean we would have to add the equivalent of the cost of health and welfare, which are our two biggest budgetary costs. Every we would have to add that again every year for the next forty years. It's equivalent to what we spent um, in World War One on defence. Wow. I mean, so you know, our politicians in New Zealand don't yet use words that start with T. That they're <laughs> They, they use words that start with B, and but the 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 sums involved. I mean, I was talking to a, a electrical engineer the other day, and he was telling me about this push for electric cars in New Zealand is going to hit a roadblock. And I said, "Well, what sort of roadblock?" And he said, "Well, you know, in every suburb in most streets, there's a big green, um, you know, uh, electricity transformer in there." And he said, "Yeah." I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And he says, "Well." They'll all overheat at about six o'clock, six thirty each night. When someone comes <laughs> home with their electric car and starts um, plugging it in, there's more and more of them being plugged in. That's going to require a massive drain on electricity, which is fed through that transformer, which isn't designed to do that and have that load. And so you're going to start seeing brownouts when you hit about, um, you know, fifteen to twenty percent of the vehicles on the road are electric. Yeah. And, oh. and we've, we've got the same problem here where yeah. our electricity reticulators and the electricity sector is talking about investing in renewables, but what they're not talking about is upgrading the the uh, the grid. And it, and and it's we're even more exposed because we've got a cable between the North Island and the South Island. <laughs> and most of the power that's generated in New Zealand is generated in the South Island. And it's exported to the North Island, but that cable is at capacity. So if you want to create more generating resources and more supply, you have to build it in the North Island, not the South Island, and the North Island is not conducive to it. So we've got this massive infrastructure, and then I'm told that the cost of putting a second cable across Cook Strait is, is in the billions, and no one's talking about that. But it sounds like Australia's got the same problem that you've you yeah, um, you just have the just, infrastructure to support what the, these wet dreams of these politicians. They just so it, assume that it that it will happen. Um, pardon me. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, like they talk, for instance, um, the um, the re- the report itself acknowledges that. It will have to cover pretty much about half the area of Victoria. So you're probably looking at about roughly half the area of the North Island with um with wind turbines and solar panels. Wow. Um that's just that's, huge. It's just um because I again Carl Sagan said like a back back of the envelope calculations are invaluable. They can quickly bust an idea that sounds great. Yeah, Joy. And yeah, like. I'm just a humble, you know, journalist that I've run some of them, and it's it just comes out staggering. Like to convert the entire world just on current energy consumption to renewables, you would pretty much have to cover the equivalent of India in panels and and wind turbines. So, of course, is the environmental cost of that, and they. Yeah, they just make assumptions so heroic they could leap tall buildings in a single bound. But yeah, the who's going to 
where are you going to get the people to build all this stuff? We already have a skilled worker shortage as is. Um, and presume, yeah, there is, you've got to assume that the rest of the world is, is going to be doing the same thing. So there's going to be a massive shortage of skilled workers. Um, the materials will be in very short supply and incredible. They'll just go up in price because, you know, more people will want them. Um, then there's things like, you know, the battery. You know, they, they like to brag about their big batteries. Um, the one in South Australia, I think, was the, I'm not sure if it still is, it was the biggest in the world. You know, can only supply a few minutes worth of, of power. And the other thing that people forget is that household electricity is only a fraction of total energy consumption. Yeah, there's other things that run on oil and gas and coal, things like transport industry. So to electrify all of those is just, um, you know, the people just have no no real inkling of what sort of tasks they're talking about. Well, they're, um, kind, of, they're kind of like public transport advocates. They think everybody should take, catch a bus. Um, <laughs> and, you know, my saying about public transport is it's, everyone has these grand ideas about how public transport should operate. But the reality of the situation is that public transport is essentially uh, a non-functioning in the real world environment. Now, in Melbourne, for example, when I lived there, public transport I thought was pretty reasonable. But I came from New Zealand where public transport's mm. rubbish. But the reality is, is most people like the convenience of their private motor vehicle, and they'll have that prized from their cold, dead hands long before they'll take a tram or a bus or or or, or cycle or or you know, God forbid, they walk anywhere. And the yeah, politicians. Well, so that's, why we, that's why we need our fifteen-minute cities. Well, we we well we don't. You know, do I want to live in a city like that? No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but they're for other people to live in. It's the same thing, yeah. right? These politicians, and mostly green politicians, but but also mostly on the left um, side of politics, have these grandiose ideas of how we should all live, and then reality smacks them in the face, and they still are pushing that, and eventually they disappear off the off the. The, the political landscape, but their ideas have have handcuffed us in to a society that is dependent on the state. And that's yeah. what those 15-minute cities essentially make people dependent on the state. And, and that might be the city council or the state government or whatever, but that's what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, it's e it is easy to make an argument from hypocrisy, but You've got to say, like, if some of these people really seriously believed what they say, they would change their lives dramatically. And they don't live, they don't practice what they preach. Uh, one of the teal independents in Australia, they're called teals because they're blue-green. They're very rich, but they espouse green you know, politics. In fact, the Greens Party collectively are the richest voting block in Australia. If you look at where people vote green and teal, it's all the inner cities of Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah, you know, some of the most expensive, exclusive, expensive suburbs in Australia. That's where the Greens' power base is. And yeah, so one of the teal independents, Monique Ryan, uh, Mongo as I call her, uh, she's she was recently revealed that she has taken twenty-seven business class flights from Melbourne to Canberra. Since she was elected, uh, um, so shameless, that carbon 
that's you know she's got a bigger carbon footprint than the average African nation. Well, the, the thing is, is these hypocrites when they're busted for that, they say, "Oh, but I bought carbon credits." You know. <laughs> so okay, so who paid for that? It wasn't you, was it? Oh no, that's right, the government did. So you know, it's it's just nuts that these hypocrites. Uh, foisting these societal changes on us, uh, and then wamble off into the into the ether, uh, onto the speaking circuit, flying around, going to Davos and places like that in their in their jets, while they're all telling us how we should all be impoverished and live in caves and um, and maybe make our own candles, and you don't really need to have power. You can. Coexist just by walking around barefoot, barefoot preferably, you know, because yeah. it's it's better and for the. It's astonishing how I mean these people aren't stupid, but it's astonishing how ignorant they are about the very things they talk about. I mean, Steve Coonan, who is by no means a denier, you know, he's he was uh, the science advisor to the Obama administration. Yeah, he's a physicist, so he's a hard numbers guy. And his book, Unsettled, is very good reading because it just shows that the disconnect between what is actually in the science and what is reported and widely believed is just incredibly vast. And it's essentially, it's a game of telephone. Um, you have the, the, scientists, the scientists doing their work. The IPC, IPCC compiles their uh, assessment reports, which are just uh, compilations of of our scientific papers, blah blah blah. More like but then, necromancy, isn't it? Really. Then those gets those get synthesized into what are called the summary for policymakers, and particularly at that point, that's when you're getting a lot of non-scientists, active you know, NGOs, that sort of thing having input. So it's it's dumbed down and put into the summary, and then. The politicians and the media actually only ever read the press releases that accompany the the summary for policymakers, and the press releases are a yeah are another remove from the actual science. So, yeah, they they just yeah you look at the say the the just stop oil protesters who are almost exclusively very well off private school educated people, and they're incredibly ignorant. Like they say. Oh, look at the wildfires in California or Canada. Oh, the earth is burning. And it's just not true. Uh, NASA themselves say that global wildfire has decreased by 25% in the last decade. So, yeah, the world isn't burning. It's it's burning far less. The world is getting greener. Not It's not turning into a desert. Um, again, NASA's own reports say that global forest, you know, forest cover has increased, and which is what you would expect in a slightly more carbon dioxide rich environment. So essentially there's no real evidence at all that the thing is, you know, climate change, it has some downsides and it but it also has upsides. For instance, more greenery, more, yeah, more food. Uh, so there's there is a balance. And the best evidence is that there is not going to be a net negative until at least the end of the century. So it's imagine us saying to people in 1900, well, you can't have motor cars, you can't have coal fires, you can't have electricity because in 100 years, 
you know, people who are already going to be immeasurably richer than you, yeah, you know, are going to face some, some consequences. They'd have told you to, to go to hell. It's it's Luddite type behavior, really. Um, but you know, I've been watching a few of the uh, videos that are coming out of Australia with these stop oil people that are sitting blocking the traffic, and then some citizens decide that they're going to sort it out. And there was a good one uh, going around yesterday on Twitter of this uh, woman who'd had enough of being blocked by this people, walked up to another uh, female protester, grabbed her by the hair and just dragged her off, yeah. off the street. The frustration levels are building, and like, they're lucky they're getting their hair pulled at the moment. It's not going to be too long before some truck driver decides to get out and sort it out with a lump of four by two. Yeah, and it's, it's um, I think it was Brendan O'Neill called it, a dictatorship of the prigs because they yeah they're all they're they're, they're almost always very upper yeah very well to do people uh they're the idle rich basically and who are sitting around finger wagging working class people just you know who are just trying to get to work or do their job well you know i i put put a lot of these problems that we're facing and some of the ones that you've addressed today down to the fact that conservatives don't fight. Conservatives don't say, you know what, that's a stupid idea, shut up. Yeah. Um, we just say, oh, that's nice, dear, thank you for your opinion. And then we actually don't see the danger of allowing those people to keep pushing their their opinions out there till you get to the ridiculous situation where we have these kids that are stopping uh, vehicles on the road where you have boys who think they're girls and girls that think they're boys because nobody's actually said, you know what, um, yeah, no, that's stupid. Go to your room. Yeah. <laughs> Go to your yeah. room. You're on time out until you get a hold of yourself. You know, And, and it's, it's kind of the nature of things. I mean, most people aren't that interested in these, you know, like you know, they, they just want to go to work, do their job, go home, hang out with their families. Yeah, they're not, they're not interested in being activists or that sort of thing. Unfortunately, they may not be interested in being activists, but activists are very interested in them. Oh, oh yes, very, very, especially the useful idiots. Yeah, and so it eventually, but it eventually does come to it once people start seeing it in their daily lives. It comes to a crunch point, and unfortunately, it, then it gets it can get nasty, which is whereupon the left sort of say, "Oh, look, you know." Look what they're doing to us. They're being mean. It's like, well, yeah, they've had enough. But, you know, in New Zealand, net zero is turned out to, to mean that we stop our oil and gas industry, that we have some of the largest coal reserves in the world and, and of particularly good anthracite coals and things like that. We've got some of the best, but we're not digging it up. We're not using it. Uh, we're import, net importers of dirty Indonesian coal. Yeah, uh, and Australia is insulated a little bit from that because so far the mining communities and the politicians have realised that uh, Australia's external income that we get that you get from exporting goods like coal, like uh, uh, you know oil, like gas, those sorts of things. And, and you mentioned right at the start, you know, that you're exporting gas be- to the Europe because um, the Ukrainians. Of the Russian pipeline's been destroyed. These are all things that are helping the Australian economy, and, and pretty much I think the Australian public gets that, apart from those inner-city 
you know, young people who've never wanted for anything in their life and have the latest cell phone and, and all yeah. the accoutrements of wealth that go with it and can't afford to sit on the street and, and annoy people. Yes, well, you had the very um, telling incident uh, was before the last election. I can't remember. It was a few years ago. Uh, Bob Brown got his, his caravan of something. It was an anti-coal thing, and it was just basically the usual gaggle of what I what I call the nosy nanas, you know, the retired, you know, the retired leftist boomer ladies that and you know student student radicals and they had a little caravan that trundled up the east coast of australia and when they got to queensland they didn't know what had hit them there was entire towns just lining the streets to abuse the shit out of them because yeah it was their livelihoods on the line um but you mentioned yeah, Australia, yeah, Australia, Australia has vast reserves of coal and gas australia also has vast reserves of another potential energy source, which you did mention briefly before, and that's uh, nuclear. Yes. Australia also has the some of the world's largest known reserves of thorium, which is a budding nuclear technology and a very promising one at that. Yeah, thorium um, reactors are real interesting. It's a whole other discussion. So, and that's where, you know, being the, becoming opposition leader after a thumping, elect, after a loss is never, is, you know, it's always a poison chalice. So it's you know, Peter Dutton is unsurprisingly struggling in the polls, but there are, and you know, he's not the most uh, telegenic chap. It must be it must be admitted. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's an ex Queensland popper, and he looks it. <laughs> yeah, but you know, he's he's finding some. I think he yeah, he's finding some points of difference because the problem, of course, is that. Like National and Act in New Zealand, the Liberals, particularly in Australia, are just are hopeless. You know, they think that the only way to get elected is to basically be like the Greens, but just wear a better suit. <laughs> so you've got. Yeah, I'm yeah, not just, sure that's a, a, a. I'm not sure that's a winning proposition, but I guess they're going to find that out. Yeah, uh, fairly sure, and certainly the National Party is going to find out that. Being just like Labor, but a little bit less rubbish, is not a compelling reason for people to change their vote. No, and they only have to look at Tony Abbott. I mean, again, Tony Abbott was absolutely hated by the by the media. Um, and look, back in the day when I was still a Labor voter, I detested him as well. But then one day, I just out of curiosity, I picked up his his these little manifesto battle lines and read them. But, you know, this is actually a pretty smart guy and a lot of what he's saying is not at all unreasonable. And what Abbott did was he, like when they lost, when John Howard lost government, it was a landslide for Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd was more, was had the sort of popularity that Jacinda Ardern could have only dreamed of. Yeah, he was, he was running like 70% approval in the opinion polls. Um, and of course, yeah, we all know what happened after that. But to his credit, Tony Abbott turned that around in just one term to going from a landslide loss to coming within a bee's dick of getting of getting government back. Mm. If it wasn't for the two so-called conservatives in in um, New England, Robert Schott and Tony Windsor, yeah, he he would they would have had government. Yeah, 
So, and then it was another term after that and they won. And Abbott did that by not being woke, not being weak and wet. He took the fight to them. And he, like, he absolutely hammered Julia Gillard over the carbon tax thing. Um, sorry, yeah, he used a lot of three-word slogans of that, but he did so devastating effect you know, like great big new tax. That just hit the government so hard. Um, and, yeah, and then he won government, and unfortunately, once he was in government, he kind of lost his mojo. Like, they tried to do the classic thing of... Um, put all the bad stuff in your first budget. And, of course, it generated a massive backlash and they they got spooked and the party dumped him and put in Malcolm Turnbull instead and then we ended up with Scott Morrison. Um, of course, Abbott also made a massive mistake of thinking that he could get away with breaking an election promise in his first term, nobody would care. And the thing is, Australians had had enough of that with Julia Gillard, like the day before the election since... Very clearly, there will be no carbon tax under a government I lead. Makes a deal with the Greens and brings in a carbon tax. So Australians were really jack of being taken for for mugs like that. So when Abbott said, you know, um, I think it was they won't be changing pensions. First budget, they changed pensions. That was a pretty fatal mistake. Yeah. But, yeah, he just showed that, you know, a politician with a bit of mongrel, like a conservative politician who's just got a bit of mongrel, who ignores the media, because, yeah, they, they seem to think that they can get the media on side. That's never going to happen. No. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull was beloved by the media until he became a conservative prime minister and then they turned on him. Well, so, the problem, yeah. with, problem with Malcolm Turnbull was that he was just a rich kid blowhard. Um, who who liked to talk himself down as being the every everyday bloke of Australia, and he just so wasn't, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, he didn't grow up in in a commission house with a single mother like Albanese, <laughs> as he'll tell anybody who who, who doesn't want to know. But um, yeah, so Dutton needs yeah. So like to look yeah, you look in say Victoria, the Liberal leader there, John Pasuto. Yeah, he's just pathetic. Yeah, in, so when, so yeah, he he's being sued by his own for defamation by his own ex MP. So yeah, you because know, he basically called her a Nazi. Yeah, <laughs> because she stood yeah you know, she stood up at a women's rights rally that was very suspiciously gate crashed by a gaggle of edge lords doing Hitler salutes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so Dutton seems to be finding a few points of difference, and if he can pull the party into line behind him, for instance... Um, well, Dutton's got the same problem that Christopher Luxon has. He's, he's bald. Yeah. Right? And, and like, people criticise me for saying that, but the facts show that bald people generally don't get elected to leadership positions. Um, they don't win elections. They have to do something spectacular to get elected yeah. or, or, or to jimmy the system, like, you know, Benito Mussolini, for example. But <laughs> but you, but the only politician you could say who is genuinely bald and got elected off his own merits was Dwight D. Eisenhower. And, and, and Dutton, you just look at him and you think, oh, if he's wearing a, 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 you know, a Queensland hat, Everyone's still looking and going, yeah, but you're just a bald guy with a hat on now. 
<laughs> and it sounds well, it sounds facetious and it sounds superficial, but that's how the majority of people look at politicians. Look I at mean, go, oh, Peter Gutman pulled it off in Tassie. Yeah, although I think he had the um, the first wave of COVID factor. I mean, for the first round of elections after COVID, it was a bonus because people were still buying into the fear mongering. So, but yeah, yeah, Peter Gutman. Yeah, managed to hold on to government in Tasmania. It's very difficult. Tasmania's electoral system is even more convoluted than MMP. Oh, it's a it's appalling system. So um yeah, but as Sega Dutton is doing like uh, no referendum, in, like only eight out of 44 referendums going back to that in Australia have ever passed. Yeah. None have ever passed without bipartisan support. Yeah. Even those that have had bipartisan support often don't, like the Republic referendum. But, yeah, basically once Dutton said, okay, no, we're, we're adopting a no stance, that that was probably the, a killer blow. But, yeah, he's found on that one, he's, yeah, he's found some mojo. Like if the referendum goes down, basically his side, with the Australian people against the elite that, that Anthony Albanese was pushing. Um, and he's also, he's openly canvassing now nuclear, which has, you know, been a forbidden topic in Australian politics for decades, but more and more people in the street and you'd be saying, well, yeah, maybe we do need to think about it. Yeah. Just finally, uh, to round out, listeners in New Zealand have been watching what's going on uh, in Victoria. And we saw Dictator Dan just <laughs> show absolute excesses of totalitarianism during the, the COVID lockdown. But strangely, he managed to win the last election. But what are his prospects now? He's got that election uh, under his belt now. But how's he faring? Are people tiring of Dictator Dan now? I think so. I mean... Victorians are weird, and I say that as someone who was born and raised in Victoria. You, um, you live in Tasmania, and you're calling Victorians weird? <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, um, like during like my own family, like during the whole COVID thing, they were just, the, it was quite the Stockholm syndrome. Like I'd be on the phone to my mum, and she'd be like, oh, no, I've got to go dance coming on the telly. <laughs> and, yeah, they they were glued to it. I mean, and they are utterly convinced of things that are just not true. Like this, yeah, they're like, oh, Dan saved Victoria from COVID. It's like, no, he didn't. Victoria had the worst COVID outcome of any state in Australia, and that was after once it all happened after he put down lock put in lockdowns. It, lockdowns didn't stop it; they made it worse. Um, oh, but yeah, it all came from New South Wales. Like, no, they genomically tested, traced the COVID outbreaks in Melbourne, and nearly all of them came from the hotel quarantine scheme. And but Victorians, you just cannot convince them otherwise. Um, it's like New Zealand was. The people are still convinced that Jacinda Ardern saved us. You know, we 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 our country is you know, groaning under a mountain of debt as a result of the borrowing that happened. 
she swanned off to the to various different cushy jobs and left us all to it. Um, but people, yeah. there's still people out there who think that you know um, Jacinda Ardern saved us uh, by locking us all up in our houses. Yeah, although I think the last Victorian election wasn't as um, clear cut as people tend to think it was. Because the problem for, and this is what also happened with the federal election, if you look at the federal election, um, Albanese got the second, the lowest vote for the Labor Party in a century and the second lowest in history, in Australia's history. Uh, He got a vote, 32% primary vote. Now, in the 90s, when John Howard was Prime Minister, 30 uh, Labor had landslide losses with 40% of the primary vote. Right. Um, but the problem that, that's happened is that people, conservative voters are so disgusted with the so-called conservative parties that they're deserting them. And so you're seeing a lot of votes getting um, pretty much siphoned off into minor parties. So, um, yeah, I don't think the Victorian election was quite as resounding victory for Andrews as it looked. Uh, because he may have won a lot of seats, but he didn't win as many votes as you might have expected. Yeah, and that's the values of that Australian voting system, isn't it? With preferential votes, and and you've got to yeah. have a you've got to have a down ticket in supporting parties so that your preferences can can pick. There isn't that right? Yeah. So, and so Labor has the Greens as you know that helps them. Uh, with and the I preferences. would point to to uh, Jeff Kennett as well. Uh, yeah, you know, like we had, <laughs> yeah, we had another Labor government that that almost bankrupted the state. Kenner came in with a thumping majority, um, and you know he basically repaired the state's finances. The next election, he seemed to win pretty convincingly again, but there you could tell that there was an undercurrent. And then the election after that, basically hubris got to him. Um, and yeah, the election after that was he was he was tossed out, and yeah, yeah, it was definitely hubris comes before fall. One thing I particularly because I still lived in Victoria at that time, I particularly remember like their election campaign was Jeff Rules. Yeah, they thought they were being really cute yeah. and going yeah, for the yeah. young vote and that sort of thing, but I think that's that got on the nose with a lot of people like you know, he's supposed to govern not rule and the other there was a very very famous interview he did with John Fain who was like you know the, the king of talk radio in Melbourne and basically Jeff Kennett just refused he just stopped talking to him like he was asking him a few hard questions and Jeff Kennett literally said well I'm just I'm not going to answer that I'm just going to sit here and drink my tea and then there was just awkward silence and it did not play well for him. And of, course, of course, Labor put up a, a much younger Steve Brax back then, yeah. didn't he? Because I, I was living in Melbourne at the time when that election happened. And, uh, yes, yeah, Steve Brax came through, um, had a promising good start to, to his government, but uh, in reality ended up essentially being labelled as corrupt. Uh, yes. And that was the end of him, but it's been Labor governments ever since. It hasn't been. Yeah, I think all but I think four of the last 25 years have been Labor governments. Mm. 
Um, so yeah, like I really, I have a feeling that that uh, old dictator Dan will bow out. Yeah, he, he's got his statue on Treasury Place again, thanks to Jeff, uh, rule that Jeff Kennett brought in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, which I imagine will be a fodden target for vandals for many years to come. <laughs> but yeah, I think he'll he'll be out while the getting's good, and his um his successor will be left to carry the can. Much again as John C- John Cain did, he he quit and dumped it all in in Joan Kerner's lap. So and she never had a hope. And look, you know, Kerner, she was a leftist. She was she was from the socialist left of the party, but I don't think she was an entirely bad politician. But she never had a chance. So. No. Um, and that whole thing of just dropping the ball. I I you know I wouldn't put money on it, but I would not be surprised to see the voice referendum called off. It's not locked in yet. Uh, basically, once they announce a referendum date, then by law they have to hold them, hold it, and they haven't yet. And now they thought he would probably announce the referendum date at the Gama Festival, which is an Aboriginal cultural festival, next month. Yeah, and he said no, not they won't be announcing it till September at least. Well, he's running out of time to get it done, and it, you know he's he's already been in power a year. Uh, if he leaves it much longer, it's going to run into the second half of his um, term, in which case it could negatively affect him. But yeah, so I've got a feeling. You know, I've just got a little niggle that it might well, actually. I'll just make be... a note of this prediction, Lushington, and we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if it yeah, comes we'll true in, in another episode. Uh, but think... I mean, we know what's going to happen if if it, if it's either dumped or if it loses, they will just. Yeah, we'll just be screamed at as the world's as racists, or you know, and, and yeah, yeah, calling yeah, and insulting voters as Hillary Clinton knows works really well. Yeah, it, it generally doesn't work as well as the politician who uh, issued the insults think it was going think it was going to yeah. work out for. It. But you know, it's been even the very fact of calling the referendum has, by nature, been divisive. And if you look at say, American politics, you know, Obama, I think, is responsible for a lot of the problems, cultural problems that grip America now. You know, he he ignited, reignited race in America in a way that no politician had done for decades. Even during the primaries against, he he played the race card against Hillary Clinton um, because, as people conveniently forget, it was the Clinton campaign who, who started the whole birther argument? Yeah, and well, of course yeah. The, the, the Clinton campaign are the most dirty and despicable you can yeah. imagine. You know, you look at the the birther campaign they mounted against Obama, and then later they mounted a, a similar one against Trump. Um, mm. That it was the Hillary Clinton cha- uh, campaign that hired, you know, a, a steal steal uh, to create this dossier which had all sorts of uh, juicy details in it, which were completely made up and, and actually a fantasy and imagination of, mm. of steel. But the media just ran with it all like it was verbatim, and it's all been proven now that. So yeah, like I think rubbish. The um, there's not going. So I think just the very fact of having this referendum on a racial issue has been incredibly divisive just by its nature. 
So I don't think we will, we, as it looks, we will probably dodge a bullet and vote the referendum down. But, you know, there's not going to be a lot of real winners from it because it's, it's, it's set up some really divisive, nasty politics. And yeah, so yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's where it's going to go. Well, on that note, I think we will wrap up this segment of the political tragics from the Australian point of view, from Lushington no and Brady. Uh, perhaps you might like to tell readers where they can, or listeners, where they can get their uh, book from. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. A great read. Uh, uh, yeah, um, it's available from Amazon um, on Kindle ebook and in paperback for print on demand. And it's what I call a good toilet read. It's you know, it's it's lots of short articles. You, you can you can read one or two while you while you're contemplating the world. Shouting across the ditch, the collected Lushington Brady Volume One. Trans-Tasman politics, culture, and everything in between. You can find that on Amazon. I found that discussion about the voice referendum fascinating. Lushington believes it's likely to fail or get pulled to save Elbow the embarrassment of a loss. Net Zero appears to have a multi-trillion dollar price tag. Yeah, that's right. It's with a T. And that's giving the politicians kittens as they try and justify impoverishing their nation for a fanciful idea such as Net Zero. And the cost of living in Australia is as bad as it is in New Zealand. And they've got the same problem that we have here, politicians that refuse to acknowledge that they're part of the problem, not part of the solution. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Coming up after a short break... We'll hear what Shane Jones has to say about the challenges in Northland and why he's the man for the job. Just a wee reminder that you can catch The Crunch every Thursday from 4pm right here on RCR. Remember, you can check out all the past interviews on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Former Labour politician and now New Zealand First candidate Shane Jones needs no real introduction. He's been around the traps, he's been part of the elites, and now he's seen the light and standing in Northland for New Zealand first. Welcome to The Crunch, Shane. Yeah, greetings from the today sunny Northland, the land of uh, aspiration, hope and growth. <laughs> yeah, the, the electorate race in Northland this year is real interesting. Um, there's a lot hanging on it for a, a number of parties. New Zealand First being one of those. Um, do you think you're taking a risk of splitting the vote here and letting Willow Jean Prime carry on as the MP? Well, I think we need to bear in mind, since 1996, the average vote that the Labour candidate in Northland has attracted is about 8,000. The outlier result was the last election when Willow Jean um, secured 17,000 votes against the 16-odd thousand from Matt King. And I've got no doubt in my mind that this election, the Labour percentage of the vote will drop back to about seven to 8,000, which is the usual norm. Uh, Matt King, he's um, standing, obviously. Uh, Grant McCullum for the National Party and myself from New Zealand First. 
So it's going to be a, an exciting race. And to be honest with you, mate, whoever captures the eight and a half, nine thousand votes that Willow filched last time in the COVID election will win this seat. And is that you, Shane? Well, I'm in to win. We've started very early. We had a campaign launch at our local pub, which in itself takes risks because people tend to be a bit lubricated by and, and uh, <laughs> uh, somewhat intolerant of long political speeches. But anyway, we uh, managed to come out of that relatively unscathed. And the strategy has been to crystallise the message and actually go to the small nooks and crannies and hamlets because Northlands are widely distributed. It's not as bad as some South Island electorates or the yeah. East Coast. But look, it takes a good three hours um, on our roads up here to go to the southern end of the electorate from the northern part. I've been well received. I think it's uh, fair to say last time around people didn't show me the love. Uh, you can always say, uh, Cam, that we could have tried harder in that COVID election. But look, Winston said to me, Shane, that's in the past. I won yep. the seat with 15,500 votes. Now get out there and recover what I had. So so. What are you focusing on then? What's what's the Jones boy saying to the electorate are the, are the critical things that need to be done in Northland and that it's critical that they elect you to make sure that those things happen? What, what do you see as those key issues for Northland? Well, like all politicians, let's start with the personality that people uh, perceive. Uh, number one, my byline is action, not talk. We're running on uh, with pride on our record for having delivered for Northland over the three-year period. And, you know, it's a substantial amount of capital that was injected into Northland, and most of it went on infrastructure. Because I'm 63 years old, 57 years of my life, we've had national MPs up here. We've got the worst roads, we've got the crappiest services, and we've got some of the most intransigent types of um, social problems. So, number one, running on the record. Number two, I've led with my chin against the feral spread of criminality in the North, driven by not only drugs, but a complete spread of dysfunctionalism where uh, people's demands that their entitlements be respected is inversely related to their willingness to uphold responsibilities, duties, and obligations. So I've been really strong in that regard. And more importantly, saying that no one's going to save us, Cam. We've got to save ourselves. Yeah. And this notion that we can regulate our way into wealth and uh, growth in the North, which is uh, what we're currently ensnared with, is going to destroy the North. So I repeat again, someone who delivered against all odds. I think our, I think my record is uh, beyond anyone else that served in the Jacinda Winston um, government as, as a minister because I genuinely got things done. Mm. Secondly, I'm not going to take a backward step with the spread and creep of criminality within Māoridom and the broader Northland community, taking on uh, the egregious behaviour of the gangs. But underneath all that, mate, we're not going to grow unless people are made to be responsible for sending their kids to school, standing up, earning a living, and also standing up for the values of the community, which should eclipse the uh, personal agendas that um, some households have. And the last thing, obviously, is... Uh, is hope and growth. And we're only going to have growth when we've got uh, a bunch of rules and regulations and capital that uh, unleashes the north. For example, the three huge water dams that I funded that has opened up the land for lots of investment and new potential. 
Well, I noticed that um, that the government tried to claim credit for for that dam and the funding for for one of those dams when they opened uh, opened the details on that. Willow Gene Prime was was forefront saying that we've delivered this, but it's it, it was actually uh, provincial growth fund funding that uh, that delivered that, and that that's directly a result of New Zealand First. So, some yeah, would say point, it was the Shane. Absolutely right. Yeah, some would say it was the Shane Jones re-election fund, but uh, <laughs> they, those people generally vote blue. Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, they've got a look. Voters have a choice this time. Uh, if they vote for Grant, uh, Grant's a bit uh, not quite as old as me, but he's hardly a spring chicken. He'll never be a minister. Grant McCullum, the national candidate, will never ever be a minister. He may, a little bit like Shane Adern from uh, Taranaki, rise to be the chairman of a select committee. Uh, he'll be kept in the back benches, relatively obscure and um, powerless, quite frankly, over the next three years in the event there is a national-led government. Uh, Willow ha- was handed the seat through COVID, and she's done nothing with it. There's not been any fresh injection of capital up here. Um, the uh, NZTA are spending some money in the Mangamuka Gorge, but that's State Highway 1. You should expect that we in the north have resilient, um, accessible, and um, safe roads to drive on. You don't need to campaign on that every three years. It's just an expectation that we have. But uh, look, the point is well made. One shouldn't take anything for granted, but uh, I genuinely believe that uh, we're in with a major chance up here. We've got to continue to spread the message and uh, beat the drum and go out and meet the people. Because Northland Electorate, you know, uh, normally you pointed out it's been, what, what 57 years with national MPs. Uh, normally the Northland election race is very yawn-inducing. It was, oh, yeah, national one again in Northland. This election, though, it's kind of special because if you win Northland and New Zealand First only gets 4%, then you're still in. And the same goes for Matt King. It's, it's, all, it's, it's all or nothing on Northland, particularly for Matt King. Do you have that feeling yourself, Shane, that it's all or nothing for Northland for New Zealand First? Or do you think New Zealand First is going to get a few more vote, get, get well over the 5% and Northland will be um, icing on the cake. Yeah, that's definitely how I feel. I think it's um, it'd be tremendous if I could emulate the feat of Winston, which he achieved in the by-election in 2015, and secure the seat for um, Northland. That would be a tremendous uh, outcome, both for the party and for the North. However, look, I'm, it's not fair to say I'm dismissive, but I'm a doubting Thomas about the accuracy of the polls yeah. that are bobbing around at the moment. I feel that a lot of the decision-making will come down to the actual campaign uh, in early September to the middle of Oct- to early October. Uh, those debates will expose whether or not Christopher Luxon can handle the incandescent pressure that you do um, suffer during an election campaign. It'll be an opportunity for Winston to demonstrate that the reservoir of experience and um, knowledge that he has, and also a reminder, mate, you know, Mm. nigh on 25% of all voters uh, are over the age of 65. And we shouldn't trash that experience. That's why I've got a very dim view about people who 
who, um, well, I'm 63, but uh, who have a view that um, we're all, um, what do they call us, boomers, and uh, our, our interests are irrelevant to the future of the country. The, the so same. I'm very confident that we'll make the 5%. Yeah, the, it's power, funny. The, the crowds are packing into the halls, and I just feel people aren't um, in a situation where they really want to express how they feel at the moment because there's been a culture of censorship which has grown over the last three years. And and that's one thing that I've I've noticed from your speeches, your TikTok videos, uh, your Facebook videos. You and New Zealand First seem to be railing against this uh, woke revolution that's happening. Which you know the same people that are calling you and I boomers and and dismissive and of of you know us being old and having grey hair or whatever. They're the same people who get upset if you call them the, by the wrong pronouns. It's it's kind of strange, you know. The same people who are hurling insults don't like insults coming back their way. Yeah, well, in the event I ever wash up as a minister again, I don't ever want to receive a letter with he, she, they, them. I, I just I'm perplexed as to how the hell New Zealand ended up in a situation where a tiny sliver of the population. For them, the most dominating issue in their life is their gender. That is not the main issue in Taitokero, Northland. That is not the main issue in the vast majority of households I encounter. And the fact that the social revolution has eclipsed a host of other far more important issues, I think, is an indictment on the current regime. I completely detest the notion that men can walk um, unfettered into ladies' toilets and, and I just feel that it's inverting some of the um, major influences that define us who we are as Kiwis. But there it is. You know, it is what it is. Personally, if you want to make your lifestyle choices as a part of your bedroom politics or how you live your life in your own home and your family, that's your business. But this notion that somehow it's a riveting, all-encompassing issue in comparison to everything else that people complain to me about, it's a tiny infinitesimal issue to me as a New Zealand First politician, and I don't ever want to receive a letter from anyone uh, demanding that I regard them as a he, she, they, them. The content of your advice is what I'm interested in. Yeah, character of your gender, I couldn't give a hoot. But isn't this part of the the woke revolution to segregate, divide, create uh, antipathy? in society so that everyone's at each other's throats. And that even goes down to the racial divisions that this regime has fostered, you know, where we hear constantly in the media how hard done by Maori are, how woeful they are at doing these things. How it's to, It seems to me from an outsider, you know, I was born in Fiji, so you know, I'm a Kaiviti. I was born in Fiji, yeah. so... For me to to sit here and listen to the media and politicians demean Maori and disable them with these attitudes, at the same time uh, pouring billions of dollars into various different projects that don't seem to do anything to actually assist Maori, and health reforms are a huge one that you could you could point to. And then I look at people like yourself. Uh, you know, a Maori New Zealander standing in a general seat. And I think it's kind of like you're the kind of people that that we want to see that everyone's just, we're all just Kiwis, aren't we? Yeah, in this yeah, division. Look, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we've ended up 
we've ended up, I think, in a very, very dangerous space. And it hadn't, it, it didn't just arrive over the last 18 months, but it's been turbocharged by Jacinda and the current government, and also aided by the Green Party and the Māori Party. The notion that a political party such as the Greens should be running on a writ that reopens Treaty of Waitangi claims, that changes the law and basically makes as a permanent state of crisis the grievance mentality of Māori um, hapus and iwis is is not only um, ugly, but it's going to condemn New Zealand to a constant state of polarisation. Now, the Green Party have these extreme ideas. The Waitangi Tribunal, in my view, by 2025 should be closed down. If not closed down, vastly pared back, it has served its purpose. The Waitangi Tribunal has no business determining matters of a constitutional character, including whether or not sovereignty has been ceded, whether or not self-government at an iwi level should be tolerated. Those matters lie at the heart of what it means to be a Democrat, a uh, citizen in a unified nation with un with 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 with, a, with an indivisible citizenship, and I think there's a market out there for what Winston has been saying, and I've been supporting him. And unless we stand up and boost a sense of patriotism, loyalty, and national pride and economic nationalism, we are going to end up as a version of the bleaker aspects of Fiji, where the economy gets hollowed out, and you've got two ethnic groups constantly bickering with each other. That's not the New Zealand that I grew up in. My dad was one of 17 children. My grandmother was born in 1892. She was the first blend of the Dali Maori of the North. And she's the one who gave me my language and a lot of um, my, my knowledge about Maori history. We grew up next to the Marae. I got sent to St. Saint Stephen's School. And the, uh, the, the creed and the poisonous, poisonous, bo boilerplate ideas that are being spread, uh, such as co-governance and the other reckless things that uh, the Greens and the Māori Party are throwing around, mate, it's going to alienate more and more Kiwis. Why are, you know, of the Māoris, of the, of the population that give us their identity Māori in a trans-Tasman sense, one in five live in Australia. Now, mm. Australia is hardly a social laboratory of ethnic liberalism when it gets to um, their tangata whenua. But Māori themselves are voting with their feet. They want security, they want economic opportunity, they want quality services, and they want effective outcomes. But because they, the majority of Māori don't have a debate any longer, it's commandeered by a tiny elite who derive considerable power and influence by maintaining this perpetual level of grievance mentality and polarization politics. And that's why Winston and I are sorely needed in, uh, in, in the regime after the next election. You were part of that Maori elite for a time, though, weren't you, Shane? When you were doing your fisheries work and those sorts of things, it could be, could be said, it could be argued that you were part of that Maori elite uh, back then. Have you seen the light at where this division, this segregation, this polarization heads, head, is heading us towards? And that's why you are actually standing in a general seat, why you're saying the things that, you're, that you've just said to me 
you know, which are very important things? You know, I, I believe that when Jim Bulger initiated the settlement of the Maori fisheries claims, it was purely and totally of an economic character. You can't make money out of any industry unless you are a part of that industry. Yeah. Now, once the treaty was imported or moved from those uh, matters of economic importance into social policy, the division of Crown uh, taxpayer funding, and that happened under Tariana Turia, mm. and she agitated for it before she left Labour and set up the Māori Party. So if you go back and think about the 1980s, of the fisheries that you're describing, that came about because of the privatization of access rights to the fisheries. Right. And I'm a property rights man. That's why I hate all these national policy statements that are totally diluting and eroding the property rights of landowners. The, the, the genius of New Zealand's agricultural and primary sector is the flexibility of property rights. So my like a national party was purely of an economic character, and we grew a considerable Māori presence in the industry. That is quite different from introducing co-governance, spreading the uh, spoils of the health system on the basis of ethnicity. You're sounding like um, a true blue national party person standing up for property rights and things like that. Is is that something that nationals perhaps abandoned over the years and is now ceding that argument to the ACT Party or, and or to New Zealand First? Uh, anyone who looks at my record, you'll always know that I've been pro-property rights. My dad was a farmer, and all my experience um, in my own, um, sitting as a representative when I was a young man on tribal affairs, I was always about securing recognition of property rights and then marrying capital to endeavour in creating jobs and wealth. I grew up like that. And um, this isn't a sudden revelation to me. But most of the activists and most of the um, promoters now of the Māori creed, they've moved away from property rights. They are into the creation of a dual sovereignty. They're into the creation of um, too much divisiveness. And look, the, the, the vast majority of Māori both don't understand that, and number two, are not interested in it. It's almost as though there's a bloodless civil war going on which will see New Zealand governed in a different way. And it's been described as, you know, um, that New Zealand has got to find its own unique democracy. But surely democracy is one person, one vote. And anything that prefers uh, uh, a preference in anything, access to health, um, could be even something as as minuscule as cheaper car parking at the hospital on that is decided purely on the basis of race is going to head us down a pathway towards everywhere else in the world that's done this has ended in violence. Do, do you see that happening in New Zealand or do we have such a laid back attitude that we'll just you know we'll just let it happen to us and you know we'll just carry on? Well, Inertia is one of the greatest foe in any democracy, mate. Yeah. And that's where uh, you do get um, egregious cases of corporatism or you have a, 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 the entrenchment of a, of a small elite rising to the top. You only have to look at the Middle East. Indeed, Latin America shows what happens when inertia then turns into an opportunity to suppress dissent. Now, I don't feel that New Zealand um, will 
inexorably end up there. But look, unless we stand up for the foundation values that define who we are as Kiwis, bit by bit, we're going to erode and corrode what it means to be a Kiwi. And, and I don't care if I sound old-fashioned and folksy speaking in that <laughs> vein. This is yeah. what the campaign is going to be about when I'm in the North. And I don't hide these ideas from um, people that are my phenomenas, my relations, or in other parties. I say, hey, this is a contest of ideas. And if the people um, embrace and accept my ideas, then we'll be voted in. Uh, if not, then fine, we're on another trajectory. I don't believe that other trajectory, which will end up where more and more Kiwis are so afraid or so scared of openly talking about what is it that comprises the eclipsing premier predominant values in New Zealand, and democracy has to be right at the top. There is, you know, That's why I've been saying, hey, mate, I'm all for putting the K back in iwi. And like I speak the language. Yeah. <laughs> my mum was a school teacher and encouraged pride. And uh, my grandmother and my dad and, and our church, the Anglican church, encouraged pride in all our ethnicity, all, all our, as we say up north, the whakapapa, Dalmatian, Welsh and Māori. And um, what's really important now is that we identify and fight for the things that make us es essential Kiwis. Because... Our whole demography is changing. There's 100,000 new migrants coming here. The Indian leaders themselves have told me many of these migrants are ill-suited for life in New Zealand. Mm. They are not capable of uh, maintaining a, a level of um, economic livelihood, and they're washing up looking for assistance. And that's because every time we uh, open up and act in an unfettered, indiscriminate way and open up the... Um, the channels of immigration, we increase our population, we worsen our prospects and infrastructure. Those are the big issues that we need to address, i.e. maintaining solidarity as our population changes, not not continually rehashing yeah. uh, what happened 180 years ago. Well, looking forward instead of looking backwards. Yeah, well, you know, the prow of the walkers in the front, the stern is we. I'm sure they nipped over the back and had a pee. I'm not interested in that end of the walker. <laughs> yeah. True. Um, and that's the thing, though, isn't it? New Zealand is a, a multicultural society, but we've seen from this government, uh, particularly after 2020, after the 2020 election, a helter-skelter uh, approach to locking in New Zealand as a bicultural nation and ignoring the multicultural uh, aspects. And like you've got uh, the, the Dalmatian aspect in your heritage. Um, I've got Scottish. Winston's got Scottish. Aren't we all just people that have all come here on a ship or a plane anyway, including Maori? I mean, the oral history of Maori says you all got here by boat. So aren't we all colonizers? Yeah, I think um, where we've got to go on this question is we've got to emphasize and elevate a narrative that talks about our overarching pride and who we are in relation to where we live. We're an isolated nation of 5 million odd people in a very distant location in the South Pacific. There is no one other than a colony of uh, penguins to our South. Yeah. And when you conceive the big 
earth-shaking movements that are taking place between OECD countries, between America and China, the recalibration of um, who's going to enjoy ascendancy in Southeast Asia. Europe. We cannot afford, mate, this insular bickering and petty um, squabbling as to whether or not ethnicity, whether or not some other criterion should be used to improve our socioeconomic outcomes. I feel that in the North area, <clears throat> we've ended up <clears throat> with far too much Wellington-based regulation, which introduces an unhealthy level of um, activism in relation to the Maori involvement for example, in environmental management. There's a new policy statement called the National Policy Statement on Biodiversity. Now, your listeners, yourself, probably don't even know about it. No one's hardly ever read it. But in that national policy statement created under the RMA to manage indigenous biodiversity, it has to happen in partnership with the local tangata whenua. Well, who mandated that? Who campaigned on that? Well, how many endorsed that from the electorate? Now it's the law. And that's what I hope to um, enjoy the pleasure of incinerating early in 2024. A policy, a real policy. Maybe New Zealand First should have a real policy bonfire where you get all of these laws that have been promulgated over the years that have introduced these things and have, you know, sell tickets, um, put it in the center of Eden Park, sell tick 40,000 tickets to watch laws be burned. You know, there's, there's some merit in that. Well, sadly, um, these two national policy statements, and they are obscure instruments of law under the RMA, have created a platform for ongoing drama between landowners, local tangata whenua, even Māori landowners. So, but anyway, look, it's a flight of fancy. It's a flight of fancy. It's an excessive overreach um, of the regulators out of MFE and this current government. Uh, it's going to um, kill the quarry industry. It's going to destroy whatever's left of the mining industry. It's going to hobble farming. It's going to prevent any more development of fisheries. And uh, it's a level of red tape that the country can't afford because if you're going to run, as I'm running on hope and growth in the north, you can't grow if you're hobbled by foolish laws. And hope soon dissipates if people can't achieve a level of economic self-sufficiency because they're having to hide what they're really doing because they'll never get permission to what, they, what they're going to do anyway. Well, government's just getting in the way of um, economic development, really. Um, you know, the one thing that I've you see constantly people talking about with North, Northland is access to the North. And, uh, you know, for years the Labour Party opposed uh, the, the new highway north of Auckland, calling it the Holiday Highway. They finally admitted it was, that was a mistake to call it that as they took all the glory for building the road. There's still a lot more work to be done on access to the north, isn't there? Mm, the most the most difficult part of the terrain up here is the Brindurwins, which is an area south of Whangarei. Mm. And we definitely need a single plan that four lanes um, access over the Brindurwins. Uh, I've been advised that uh, $150 million is about to be spent on the southern side of the Brindurwins which is quite frankly uh, a foolish way to use that money because what's needed is an alternative route. Now, 
people have continually talked about it. And this is what I find very frustrating about National. Right back from the days of John Banks being a member in Whangarei, everyone talked a big game. Nothing ever happened. That's yeah. what how that's what happens in Northland. You had John Carter. We had prior to him Neil Austin. Prior to Neil Austin, we had Logan Sloan. Logan Sloan lost in the 1960s the seat to um, to um, to the social credit um, um, chap whose name eludes me at the moment in the mid 60s. We've had we've had a bunch of politicians who have not known how to use their power and influence because they've been treated as mushrooms. I mean, John was a very good parish priest as a politician up here, John Carter. You can't take that away from him. But his level of influence in the National Party to deliver for the North was pitifully low. And that is my prediction if the North unwisely decides to send another National MP as their sitting member back to Wellington. Yeah, well, Grant's uh, Grant's got a great family name and his his father was a... You know, bastion of the community, but sadly, I don't think Grant is at the same level that his father ever was at. Yeah, his, his dad um, obviously was a key feature of the National Party up here, and they're a well-known farming family in the southern end of the electorate. Yeah, but um, there's just no way Grant is going to be able to match the level of influence and outcomes that Winston and I created for the North in three years. And uh, now the projects are up and running. The, the Matawi Water Dam in Kaikoui means Kaikoui will never run out of water again. A massive dam being constructed as we speak to the south of Dargaville that will completely transform and unleash the capacity of those elite soils, roundabouts, roads that have been sealed, a, new, uh, a, a, re, a revamped airport in Kerikeri. These are the uh, accoutrements that are absolutely necessary if you're going to sustain the OECD first world status of New Zealand, and well, need certainly to, in Northland. You need to have modern infrastructure, and these projects are uh, intergenerational uh, infrastructure projects rather than painting a few marae and, uh, you know, some of the st- stupid spending that was done with the COVID fund. Uh, imagine if we had spent uh, uh, you know, even a fraction of the COVID, that, what was it, $150 billion or something that they've borrowed. Imagine if they'd spent that on infrastructure-style projects and things like that, uh, not only in the north but in, in, you know, in the East Cape and other rural communities that are isolated by the tyranny of lack of investment in infrastructure over centuries. But, you know, I've also got to blame people on the ground like we had, uh, we we allocated fifty to sixty million dollars to create a barging facility near Hicks Bay on the east coast because we had been advised that the roads will never ever attract enough capital to be maintained to the level at which will be required as forestry grows and other industries are attracted to the area. And then we had a small group of cultural muppets. Uh, from some hapu up there. I mean, what do they want to do? Eat fern root for the rest of their lives. And they said, oh, this will um, th- this will damage the kaimuana. Think about the people. Think about the infrastructure. And I'm sick of seeing New Zealand run and held ransom to. I'm told there's a small, um, a small bunch of um, sort of snail-like characters in one of our hapus, Ngāti Hini, in the middle of Bay of Islands who are protesting against the extension of Kiwi Rail. We in New Zealand have created a regime where tiny minorities 
are able to hold to ransom vast areas of regional New Zealand. It is wrong morally, it is certainly wrong economically, and sadly, it's been enabled legally. And uh, I, I, with the absence of myself and Winston, no one seems to be willing or brave enough to take these people on and say, look, you may have a legitimate concern, but your concern is infinitesimally related to the overarching well-being of the region. So you've had your say, we're moving on. Now pop, pop over there at the back of the Kota or wherever you go and play marbles. The rest of us are getting on with the real life. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I think that you and Winston are able to challenge these small groups because no one can call you a racist. And, and that's the level of argument. If you say to someone, well, well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that, but if we do this and we mitigate that and we, and we put in place these procedures, then Kaimoana should be okay. Are you okay with that? Nobody stops to say that because if you are not Maori and you make that suggestion, then you get accused of being a racist. It's the first thing out of their mouths. You're right. Oh, you're saying that because you're racist. And so we don't actually have a proper debate unless it's somebody like yourself, Shane, or Winston, who are undeniably Maori. Well, challenging these people. Yeah. I mean, we're either going to stick up for the growth of an integrated nation and boost the resilience of our whole country. Or we're going to surrender in in some kind of patchwork way to these tiny constituencies who will be the first to complain if the benefit's not there on time, first to complain if the road is uh, crumbling. We cannot afford, in the face of all this adverse and volatile weather, and this is before I get to the shrillness of the of, of the climate uh, Pharisees. <laughs> yeah. We need to maintain alternative um, sources of connectivity. Now, whether it's more marine transportation, which I happen to believe in, um, boosting more uh, flood uh, flood resilient uh, roading or rail. And I've given you two examples. It is wrong for the overarching development of uh, Northland and the East Coast for these tiny groups, tiny groups of cultural termites to eat away at the uh, willpower of the rest of New Zealand to grow an integrated economy and maintain resilience throughout all of our regions. Well, it seems to me, Shane, that uh, your pitch to the people of Northland is anti-wokeism, anti-biculturalism, and more actually supporting the Kiwi way of life as we have learned to enjoy over the decades in New Zealand, and you're saying to the people of Northland, vote for Shane Jones, I'm from here, and I'm going to stop all of this nonsense so that we can grow our region and grow our country as a whole. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, we definitely need, we definitely need a gospel that drives growth, and growth should not be compromised by any tiny minority politician uh, political group or cultural group exploiting the law. Now, sadly, the uh, the green activists have found a route into uh, ruining the economy via the hapus. Mm. And one only needs to look at the unholy alliance between some of these green anti-capitalist nihilists and what they're doing with the deluding our hapus. Now, sadly, their root has grown considerably. 
their influence is inversely related to their size and their contribution to anything positive in the economy. And those types of things, I think, are a, are a, are a kind of incandescent expression of wokeism. Look, it's important that every community, Māori community, find pride and, and, and meaning in what they consider to be valuable. But that is not a license to use culture or the treaty to frustrate and undermine the overarching development of the country. Simple. The overarching development of the country is mandated, derives its moral authority from democracy. Then democracy delivers politicians through parliament that use the highest court in the land to chart a course forward to, number one, deliver on hope and actually give effect to growth ambitions. And those great ambitions can happen in Maoridom, they can happen in any community, what you like. But we are not going to tolerate, I'm certainly not in the North, a situation where a tiny group can exploit culture or misuse the treaty to hold the rest of us to ransom. Those days, if you vote for me, buddy, are over. Well, that's uh, probably going to attract quite a lot of votes, uh, that message, Shane. And uh, I wish you all the best for the uh, election campaign. Now, I have a little surprise for you. We, um, we've commissioned a poll in Northland, which we'll have the results next week. So I hope to touch base with you again next week and share the results of that poll in the Northland electorate. And we'll see whether Shane Jones is leading or Matt King's leading or Grant McCullum's leading or Willow Jean Prime's leading. But we'll have a poll that'll be a stake in the ground for the next three months of the election campaign that you'll be able to gauge uh, to see how, how your progress is going or the progress of, of other candidates. Now, Winston's warned me to be very, very, um, uh, to be a doubting Thomas about polls. So yours yours will have to reek of integrity. <laughs> I, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect anything else. There's no way it's going to be a dodgy poll, that's for sure. I'm not one of those people. I, I've made a lifetime uh, of uh, observing politics and I've made a living out of um being involved in politics, the last thing I want to do is hang my name and our organization's hat on a dodgy pole. Okay, mate. Good to talk to you. Good See talking you to you, Shane. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. I always find chatting with Shane Jones fascinating and interesting. Here's some good insights there into the challenges for revitalizing the North. And it's interesting to see that he thinks moving the ports of Auckland to Northland is pretty much impossible due to infrastructure issues. And I was pleasantly surprised to hear he's taking the fight to the wokesters. You've got to love those zingers, though. Only Shane Jones can deliver those. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. 
with me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain, and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Now it's time for all your feedback from last week. And there was a lot of it. Some of you loved it. Some of you are hard to impress. So just a selection here today while I'm talking about the feedback. Here's a shout out to Liz who compiled all of this feedback, whether it was good, bad or ugly. And remember, you can text me on 2057 or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. Here's some general comments. Cam, what a brilliant show. Thank you for keeping things raw, real, and relevant. Blessings from us in rural Taranaki. Keep it up, Cam, from Anita. An anonymous comment now. Cam, I have had to commandeer an additional iPad so as I may listen to your show and read the BFD simultaneously. Veronica has some suggestions. Hi, RCR team. We're loving RCR. Such informative and intelligent interviews. Our day doesn't begin until Paul finishes at 10, so just as well we're retired. Cam's new show started really well. Looking forward to more. Great to have replays for the evenings instead of television. I've recently finished rereading Ian Wishart's book, Teleteleteria, a fantastic read written way ahead of what is happening in today's world. I heard him speak on RCR on Niwa and the climate situation, but I know his breadth of knowledge goes well beyond that. Keep up the good work. We're doing our best to spread the word. Roy from London says, great song, Cam. Great that you're on RCR. Best wishes. And Jeremy comments, love Cam Slater's program. Just listen to the whole two hours on a wet Welsh summer Sunday afternoon. There's a few comments about my interview with Winston Peters. Keith says, two elections ago, Winston said he was bargaining in good faith between Labour and National. He put Labour in power, and then we found out he was already taking some of the National Party ministers to court. So much for good faith. I'll never trust him again. Andrew says, Cam, can you please ask Winston if New Zealand First will repeal the Firearms Act? Well, Andrew, I did ask him, and he said that he wants to completely rewrite it and do it within 100 days. So your wish was honoured. Anonymous uh, commenter says, when he never answers the question, thanks for asking the question, repartnering with Labour. Well, that's what we're here about in RCR, asking the questions that no one else will. What has ACT done? Voted against it. Winston will say anything for power, then sell you down the river. From an anonymous commenter. Love the addition of Cam Slater to your team. Listen to his intro about where he is at. Very impressed with his honesty and resilience. Cam's interview with Winston Peters was excellent. Regards, Lance. Never in a million years did I ever think I'd be considering voting for Winston Peters. But here I am doing just that. Brent says, brilliant first session, Cam Slater. Loved the interview with Winston. Well done. 
And Marion adds, congratulations, good job, Cam. Very interesting. Looking forward to the next episode. Welcome, Cam. Love the theme music. Love hearing your views, experience, and listening to your story, your journey. Winston has my vote. Let's get him over that 5%. Ha ha. We'll be listening to your shows 100%. So wonderful listening to like-minded and awake people. So refreshing. Cheers, Kate. Thanks, Kate. Mike says, hi, Cam, loving your show. I was hoping to hear Winston be a bit more Winston, but as you've said in the past, you need to take baby steps with these guys. Olivia is always great value, and I like her international perspective. It's so cool she is so up on the play. You guys are doing a great job at keeping the old grey matter working. Really appreciate the work all of you put in and just hope we all get a good result in the election. That's no Labour, no Act, no National, and no Maori Party. Cheers, Mike. I'd like to see Don Brash be given discussion time with Winston Peters. Could Cam organise that? Well, I can't promise it, but I'll give it a go. How could Winston remain unaware of Labour's treaty manipulations? The question needs to be asked. Cam Slater might ask this question. Will Winston defund WHO and take us out of it? Thank you, RCR. Leone. On my interview with Avi Yemeni, we got quite a few comments as well. Great first show, Cam. Love the chat with Avi, especially. Winston is crafty, but I like him. Still, we need him to acknowledge he messed up about the mandates. The info was there. Can't wait for next week. Anne. Jacqueline says, great interviews, Cam. Thanks. Buying Avi's book. Cam, the crunch was brilliant, and I'm not an easy person to impress. I was critical of you being overbearing with Farzan, even while I appreciate you have much to say of value. However, today with Avi, you demonstrated both restraint and yet balance with necessary and insightful, even poignant commentary. Thank you. I'm a long-term follower of Avi, holding dual citizenship as I do. The Crunch is a very worthy contribution to the most truly remarkable media phenomenon in New Zealand today. When you, when are you guys going to get a radio band, Scarlet? Now we've got some negative or curly comments. Paul says, it's been great having a radio station that is impartial and more interested in facts than fiction. However, having Cameron Slater on air is rather tarnish, tarnishing your reputation. His personal attacks on Christopher Luxon make Labour MPs' behaviour look quite mild compared to Cameron's rants. I have no issue with people disliking other individuals, but making personal derogatory remarks about someone in a public forum is unacceptable. Here, to be honest, if this is the quality of your guests, just maybe it's time I ask for my donation back. Well, Paul, I'd just hold off on that. You'll find that I am brutally honest about politicians and I'm not in the business of liking or disliking politicians. I just call things as I see them. And that's what you're donating to RCR for, for that honesty and that integrity, rather than soft soaping and cheerleading. Dear Reality Check Radio, I usually love listening to RCR, but this morning I tuned in and discovered Cam Slater denigrating someone called Russell just because he was a 60-year-old man who rode a bicycle with panniers. This said sneeringly was a blatant attack on elderly fit people, ageism. But Cam seemed from the tenor of his discourse to be dissing the left, whatever that is these days, and praising the right. I remember whale oil and dirty politics. Seems Cam hasn't learnt yet that the struggle now disregards old concepts like left and right 
It's now a fight between totalitarianism and democratic freedom. Cam needs to get with it. Like me, I'm an 80-year-old freedom fighter. So much for Cam's ageism, Donna. Thanks for that comment, Donna. Great show. This is These are comments from Facebook now. Great show and all. Cam tiptoed around with Winston Peters. Less revisiting the past, more focus on the now is more important. Is Peters really going to do what he says? That's from Christine. We'll never forget what he didn't say when he didn't stand up or the things he did say that were incredibly divisive. Winnie only says what Winnie knows he needs to say to keep on the right side of whoever. Everything he said and done since is gaslighting. Remember that, men and women, from Emma. Emma also adds, he's a snake oil salesman. When he put labor in, never forget. And Mandy says, always interesting listening to Winston Peters. My personal views have changed since being able to hear him speak without being harassed and taken out of context. Yes, very interesting, Mandy. And Daryl adds, Winston is without question our most capable politician. His international standing is second to none and his grasp of cross-portfolio workings is substantial. New Zealand needs Winston, even if it is back acting as a handbrake on agenda-driven policymaking. It's a shame ACT and New Zealand First couldn't find common ground and join forces to give the two major parties some real opposition this election. Right, that's it for the crunch this week. Next week, we'll crunch the numbers in our exclusive poll of Northland Electorate. We will have David Farrer on the line to discuss polling, how it works, what key terms are, and methodology. And we'll both crunch the numbers from our poll and tell you where things in Northland are heading. And it's been a real pleasure having you all back this week. And the news from the bosses is that we all knocked the show out of the park with some simply stunning numbers. So a big shout out to all of you and thank you for listening and having faith in me. Email suggestions to inbox at realitycheck.radio for people for me to interview. And let's make this show the best political show in New Zealand. Stay tuned for a breakfast show repeat coming up next with features including money talks with my new friend Farzan Arani and Perigo's perspective with the one and only Lindsay Perigo. Finally, to finish, I thought we'd play one of my favorite songs, Joe Cocker, Have a Little Faith in Me. Looking forward to having you join me again next Thursday at 4 p.m. for The Crunch with Cam Slater. You've been listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Remember, you can check out the replays for today's show on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. for more with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio.